Emergency Medicine Extract with Sanjay and Mike. All right. Hey. Hey, friend. How's it going? It's good to see you. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Doing EMA in March. Well, it's sort this of- is Mar- This is the March EMA. This is the March EMA. It's actually January, so happy new year. I wished everybody a happy new year a couple months ago when I did the November issue. Yeah, this future present thing is always- It's back to the- It's confusing future, for us. Future best tense. Yeah, it's like- but We'll take every opportunity know, to wish people happy new year, happy and, holidays. And I'm going to take every opportunity to emphasize that I just went to France. Yeah. And the reason that this just made me think of it was the future past. You know how France has all these verb tenses that like, actually technically we have in English, like a future participle and all this kind of stuff, but they're all conjugated the same in English. So it doesn't matter. You could just the Spanish say is like that too. Yeah. They're more or less the same. In France, they're all completely different. So like all these weird future past, there's a conjugation of a verb that describes exactly what we're discussing in French and only in French. What, what is it? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't speak that well. No, I just I just got back from France. It was great. It was my first trip, international trip in uh, you know two plus years. And interestingly, as I took off to go to France, I had to get a COVID swab, and COVID had not yet you know the sort of that winter surge that I'm hoping is has ended by the time we're doing this, but who knows? Had not really started yet in LA, and so I had to get a COVID swab. We were all negative, and like by the time I landed in France, it was like. LA had been engulfed in Omicron fire. Yeah, it's like, it's like an action movie. Yeah. You know how you see like the plane taken yeah. off and below the city. So you're like, yeah, go, go, like get yeah. it going. Of course, the, the irony being that I landed, you landed in the pit in, of Omicron. In, in Omicron pea soup, if that's a thing. I do for the for the visualizations purpose, I like to think of COVID as like having like a color, like a hue, you know? And I've always sort of thought of it as sort of this green hue. I think it's from Soylent Green or something. It's just like this green hue. So I picture walking through hallways and it's like, it's slightly green in here. There's a lot of COVID. Now, as we walk down the street, I picture myself walking through split pea soup. <laughs> like the exorcist girl has vomited. That. That's what the color you know, of the world is. It's interesting you say that because I've always pictured COVID as purple. That's true. That's real. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I never discussed this before. For some reason in my head, I've always seen it as like shades of going from like a lavender to like. So we're like in deep eggplant right now. (laughs) Yeah. That's so weird. I pictured it as a color as well, but it's purple. Yeah. That is that is strange. That is bizarre. And I'm hoping that You know, this also, of course, makes me think of like the the Talladega Nights. I like my COVID. Tuxedo t shirt because it says I'm formed. I like to party. Big wigs, Leonard Skinner, front row. Yeah. How do you picture your COVID, everybody? Yeah, write it in. Let us know. Hopefully, we picture it gone in March 2022, but I'm not. The lightest shade of purple imaginable. Yes, it's a whimsy of lavender. At this point, it's not even. A little lilac. Is it Rhea's yes, favorite color yes. purple? And that she maybe has, that's why. Yeah, because she knows every gradation. I know of it's purple ridiculous. As well, yeah. You're like, what's that? And she's like, although she's off purple now. Oh yeah, I've, purple was so 2021. No, just of the last few months, she's off purple because now she's into blue and yellow because everything has to be about UCLA now. Okay, so everything her. is like it's a good that, woman for her. That's it. Yeah, if yeah. something's blue, she's like, where's the yellow? It's got to be like blue and yellow. <laughs> 
Okie dokie. Purple's falling back a little bit. Well, I had a good trip in France, and although technically I tested negative prior to my return. Nobody believes that. I'm pretty sure I brought some Omicron back with me on the flight. I'm sorry, rows 35 and 37 that were on either side of me. But I made it back. I tested negative. Otherwise, I'd still be there. We'd be recording, you know, with me at three in the morning and you in the middle of the afternoon. But, you know, it's great to be here. But here we are. And it's great to be here. Here we are in the EMA studios, the illustrious EMA studios, ready to tackle this thing. Well, I thought before we got going, we were going to talk a little bit based on something that happened to you right before Christmas about paper selection. Yeah. So we, uh, I was at, uh, my wife works at a community hospital here in Los Angeles. And they had like a small outdoor mixery thing right before Christmas. And someone who's there, one of the people who works there, Kurt Hansen, he was telling me that he's a pretty new EMA listener. And he was just really interested in sort of the article selection. He's like, you know, how the, there's like bajillion articles. How do you go from bajillion down to 20, 22, 18, 24 every single month? And I was talking to Mike about it. And I was sort of like, you know, we haven't talked about that with the listenership. In maybe since we first did it yeah. like two or three years right. ago, because there is a process. These aren't random. You know, we, we're always asking people to send things to us. And I don't want the listenership out there to think that like, oh, they just do whatever people send to them. That's, there actually is a strategy and a methodology to it. We love it to be supplanted or not supplanted, but supplemented by um, our listener referrals. But there really is a base methodology that gets us through article selection. Yeah, which is kind of cool. And I feel like, you know, when Mike and I are dead and gone and who knows how many years from now, this is actually going to be a pretty substantial contribution to sort of the EMA life going forward. Because, you know, the way it used to work was that it was sort of a manual selection through like a paper book, the, you know, core content to whatever it was called. Core content, yeah. You know, and now it's to- it's totally, a lot of it is automated. Mm-hmm. You know, we have essentially a, a librarian who we built a program with, and it scans every journal, every digital journal, everything published every single month. It does it on the first of the month and spits things out for us mm-hmm. into categories that we had defined into five different categories, starting with basically everything published in every emergency medicine journal. Yep which generates a list of about, you know, 120, 150 50, papers, yeah. something like that. So that's where we find all your annals of emergency medicine, your academic emergency medicine, your American Journal of Emergency. That list is populated. Anything that's published as a research study in any of those articles gets populated into that first list. Yeah. And then there's the lists go on and they sort of, they kind of go down some steps that you might think are logical. Like the next step is the big journals, like the the JAMA, the New England Journal of Medicine, everything that's original research in those journals. Right. And then after that is where it gets really cool, which is basically this is something they couldn't do in the old system, but we can do now, which is this, you know, via the modern Keyword technology age, it searches every publication in every journal for the keywords emergency, emergency department, and emergency medicine, somewhere in the abstract or the title. So that's how we get some of these like really funky articles from journals that have never been covered on EMA before because they'd never been searched before. Mm-hmm. So it ends up pulling a lot of papers every month. Yeah, somewhere around 1,000, 1,200, something like that. So and then uh, Mike and I have two residents who work with us and currently it's uh, Eric Swanson and Marissa Wolf. Mm-hmm. And they sort of do a first pass of some of the articles. We keep all the emergency medicine ones and we both look at those later. But for everything else, you take out things that happen to just sort of spuriously say emergency or that are totally terrible piece of junk studies, 
or JAMA style articles that truly have no relationship to emergency medicine because we do pull all of the articles in from there. So, you know, it's like some blamabzabab for, you know, ulcerative colitis in blah, blah, blah. And that's like just has nothing to do with emergency medicine whatsoever. So those get cut off the top. So they cut a lot off the top and then we probably end up. Half. Yeah, probably more, right? We end up then with a list of maybe like 400, 400 and change, yeah. something like Somewhere that. Somewhere four or 500, yeah. So, uh, and that's where Mike steps in. Uh, he takes that list down because he has a more critical eye than it. For those of you who don't know us, I'm the positive guy in the relationship, <laughs> and he's sort of the critical negative one, yes. the, the curmudgeon, shall we say. Curmudgeon. <laughs> You're Pollyanna. Is, uh, you call me a curmudgeon. <laughs> so Mike takes that list down from four or 500 to about like 60, yeah, something like that. And then the two of us sit down and we look at all those 60 plus the listener suggestions. So those actually make it all the way to the final stage. Yeah, those ones get to cut to the front of the line, if you will. And we look at those uh, and then we come up with our list for the month. Mm -hmm. So that's, it is like Mike said, very systematic, but it does have a really wide breadth of things that we look at every single month. So that's how we do it. We thought if Kurt was interested, maybe other people were interested too. Yeah. Thanks, Kurt, for telling us to do that. So, well... I think now it's time to get into the segments. The first thing we've got, of course, are our 20 abstracts this month. But that's going to be followed closely by a little time to talk nerdy, maybe? Triple T-A-L-N? Well, there's a summary first, the ultra summary by Jess and Jenny. Then the triple T-A-L-N, and that is... Uh, performance, performance bias. bias. It's sort of this thing about like if you see me doing a procedure, you're like, wow, that was amazing. And you're assessment of the procedure is biased because I'm so awesome at performing it? Is that is that your understanding of it? That's definitely not my understanding of it. And maybe I should listen to the segment. He's, this is this is bad. This is a bad sign of Mike's either COVID fog or jet lag or something really settling in heavily here. But I feel like that's what it means. I'd say if you want to know what performance bias means, listen to Ken and Swami describe it to you. And if you want to know what the twenty papers are for the month, then buckle in. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Effect of use of a bougie versus endotracheal tube with stylet on successful intubation on the first attempt among critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Driver et al. from JAMA. And Driver is, you know, he does a lot of this airway work. So does a paper, you know it's good, it's in JAMA, you know it's going to be extra good. So the background here is Airway management is one of our most sort of prized skill sets, I think, as emergency physicians. We really consider ourselves to be the expert on this in difficult situations. And although there's been a lot of studies looking at various aspects of intubation technique, very few of them have been conducted in a rigorous, randomized fashion. Now, in this trial, the authors assess the potential value of using a bougie on your first attempt success rate compared with using sort of the more traditional endotracheal tube loaded with a stylet inside of it. Now, I have seen this done, doing a bougie first, even when you can visualize the cords a little more recently in the last couple of years by my residents than I think I ever had before. I always thought of this kind of a backup airway. You know, you look, you don't see anything, you ask for the bougie, and that's when you put it in and try to feel it stop and tracheal rings, etc. But in the last couple of years, I have seen this. I've seen people using it on a first pass. And I think this change came about because there was another trial 
published by this same group in 2018, which was the BEAM study. And in this study, they showed a first-pass success rate of 96% when you used a bougie versus 82% with the traditional endotracheal tube and stylet. Now, the numbers on their face seem very compelling, but the BEAM trial was obviously unblinded, but was conducted at a single center where all providers were highly trained in the use of the bougie. This was sort of like a bougie all-in group. Center of excellence for bougie. That's exactly right. So this one, the bougie or stylet in patients undergoing intubation emergency. I'm trying to figure it out. Hold on. (laughs) Bougie. That's a nailing of it right there. This is the bougie trial. It was a multi-center, parallel group, unblinded, randomized trial from 15 sites across the U.S. enrolling patients getting RSI and excluding patients who were pregnant, those who could not wait for randomization, so, you know, like your coding patient or something like that, and in those in whom the provider felt that one technique was clearly better or clearly worse. For whatever reason, they just felt like this was a must-do bougie situation. The primary outcome was first-pass success, and they defined first-pass success, and this is going to be a little important when we get to the results, is a single insertion of a blade into the mouth and a single insertion of whatever device that the patient was randomized to. So putting one thing in one time. They screened just over 1,500 patients and enrolled just over 1,100 patients. The median age was 58 and 41% were women. Most of the intubations were done by an emergency medicine physician, but not all. 60%, 40% were done in the ICU or something like that. This wasn't just an ED-based study or an ICU provider anyway. And most of the time, it was residents who were doing the intubations. VL was used about three quarters of the time in both groups, but obviously not the hyperangulated type, you know, like the CMAC type, or you sort of use it like an old school MAC blade. First pass success was observed in 80.4% of the bougie group versus 83% of the stylet group. Median time to intubation, 124 seconds for bougie, 112 for stylet. Hypoxia, defined as O2 sat less than 80% at any point in time during the intubation, occurred in 11% of the bougie group versus 9% of the stylet group. Serious adverse events, airway complications, etc. were very rare in both groups. They had a lot of outcomes that they put in there, and basically, no matter which one you looked at, the groups looked to be exactly the same. So, There's two pretty striking differences here from the result of that BEAM trial that I talked about before, the one from the same group a few years back. The first is the fact that the results went from strongly favoring the bougie, right, like close to 100 to close to 80, to essentially showing no difference. Mm -hmm. This might be explained by the much broader provider cohort in this bougie trial than from the original trial. I mean, 40% of them were ICU docs who maybe didn't know how to use the bougie that well at the beginning. I'm just not sure. And everyone just sort of got the same very minimal standard training here from 15 different sites. Or maybe it's also the fact that they weren't at this bougie center of excellence, so they just weren't as invested in the success of the bougie, right? It's an unblinded study. Second is, this is a relatively low first-pass success rate across both groups. Like 80% is a little bit low. And I think this probably has to do with their definition of first-pass success which was pretty strict. And like I said, there's not a lot of like big time RCTs on this. 
but usually it's a little bit more liberal than that. Even in the Beam trial, it was. In the Beam trial, they defined an attempt as one blade, right? You put the blade in once and you could kind of like muck around a little bit with the ET tube. You could put it in, pull it out, put it in. And as long as it was sort of one blade attempt before you had to do something serious, reposition, whatever, they called that one attempt. So maybe that explains a little bit of a lower success rate than we see in some other But in trials. like the near registry and stuff, the first pass success rate is usually like more like, it's not enormously more, it's usually like 85 or 86% or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so that's I, what I we're usually- agree, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what we usually see is closer to the 90 mark mm-hmm. than the 80 mark. So it's just a little bit low. This is overall a really well-conducted trial, but in my mind leaves three critical questions unanswered. First off, would there be a difference in the hands of more experienced operators, right? So these are all residents, they're all in training, but if we were to sort of repeat this trial at highly experienced community centers where attendings were there with a lot of experience intubation, they've been doing the old school way for a long time, would this bougie have any impact, positive or negative? It might slow people down. I have no idea. So the generalizability here is a bit of an issue. Question I have, number two. Is there a difference if it was used in the most critical cases that were excluded from this trial, right? Still, all these patients had to be stable enough to have time to be randomized, et cetera, et cetera. If you had like a crashing trauma patient or crashing cardiac arrest patient, maybe there's more blood or vomit in the air, I have no idea. Like maybe then one would have benefit or harm over the other. We just don't know in the sickest of the sick. I just want to bring that to everybody's attention because in the title, it says critically ill patients. But they did exclude, you know, sort of these crashing ones. And thirdly, are there any patient-specific characteristics that might make one technique more successful than the other? Maybe body habitus or anticipated difficult airway or something. So, you know, there's still a few questions unanswered. But overall, this is a pretty cool trial that sort of refutes the thing that they themselves found a couple of years ago. Right. I mean, this doesn't mean you should stop using bougies, right? I mean, importantly, this doesn't. This is not a. death sentence for bougies. This just means that as a first pass, first attempt kind of thing, it doesn't seem to have much particular value as a rescue airway. And and I would agree with that sentiment based on clinical stuff and my read of this paper. But as a rescue airway, gotta love it. It's a game changer, right? It's like one of the biggest game changers since Mike and I have been practicing is the bougie yeah, love Until the hyperangulated blade that made intubation like, easy. You know, from the last paper, they sort of like flipped the script yeah. on the whole thing. And we're like, maybe the bougie actually should be, even when you see the cords, you just put the bougie through instead of just putting the tube right. through. And now we're saying, all right, let's pump the brakes on that. Old school way, probably still okay. Editor's commentary. In this well-conducted randomized trial focused on emergent airways, Contrary to previous evidence, the authors found no difference in first-pass success or other relevant outcomes between using a bougie compared with the standard endotracheal tube loaded over a stylet for endotracheal intubation. Abstract number two, the small 14 French percutaneous catheter versus large open chest tube for traumatic hemothorax, a multicenter randomized clinical trial. This is by Kul Van Tunyu, I think, and it's in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So this is a study that we've been anticipating for a bit. It's answering the age-old question, does size matter? We haven't had one of those in a while. Which obviously they should put it in the title, but you know, hey, what do I say? So basically the traditional teaching is that hemothoraces need large bore chest tubes, like 36, 40 French chest tubes, 
because blood needs that big lumen to flow through it. Obviously, this strategy works at evacuating blood, but it comes at a cost of a big old hole in the chest and significantly more pain for patients that actually might be limiting at some point and encourage them to not take deep breaths, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The authors here cry foul. They say, you guys are crazy. Look at this. And they cite some studies that show that blood will flow very freely through small bore chest tubes, right? No problem. And they show Bernoulli's law or something. And they're like, you could evacuate 20 liters of blood in a minute as long as it doesn't clog up, right? Well, I mean, it flows through IV tubing. Right, so exactly. Exactly. That. Exactly. So the, as long as it, it doesn't clog up. And then they say on the other side, if it clogs up, it won't flow through a 40 French tube. So it's all just nonsense, basically, this tube size thing. Over the past decade, we've seen a bunch of papers that have looked at outcomes for patients with smaller chest tubes who've had hemothoraces. Initially, we saw them with like sort of 28 French and then some 20 French and then ultimately some of these 14 French pigtail type catheters. All of these previous studies showed similarly good outcomes, but almost all were observational in nature, leaving open the possibility that selection bias could be confounding the relationship between size and success. People put big tubes in when they need a big tube and when it's just a little bit of blood that's been in there for three weeks and it's not very likely to be clotted, then they put a small tube in and that's what's accounting for the no change in outcomes. These authors conduct a multi-center randomized controlled trial of pigtail catheter versus larger chest tube for traumatic hemothorax. The primary outcome was failure rate, meaning a radiographically apparent hemothorax after tube placement that required an additional procedure. So you needed a second chest tube or you needed a VATS procedure or some such thing. Secondary outcomes were initial chest tube output, length of stay, and probably the most important secondary outcome, I think, is the patient-reported experience score. Just like, how miserable were you with this chest tube in your uh, chest wall? The study was set up as a non-inferiority design, but the statistical methods and the way they reported out the data break down pretty significantly. I might get into that a little bit. Basically, they say after their power calculation that they needed 95 patients in each arm to demonstrate non-inferiority. But because of a variety of factors, including the COVID pandemic, et cetera, they terminated the study early, but somehow still had enough power to determine the non-inferiority margins, which is basically not really possible. But anyway, they don't actually tell us what those margins were, and they don't show them at all in the results. So that's probably the reason that this sort of wound up in Journal of Acute Care Surgery instead of like Journal of the American Medical Association, literally, because otherwise it's a really, really, really cool study. Any adult patient with traumatic hemothorax was eligible. They generally state, though this wasn't like exactly prescriptive, they generally state that the threshold for putting in the tube was about 300 cc's as estimated by CT scan. So generally speaking, this was a significant amount of blood, not just a drop or two that was in there. Informed consent was obtained and patients were randomized, as I said already, to a 14 French pigtail catheter or a 28 to 32 French chest tube, which was put in the usual manner and the exact tube size was selected by the the operator. Ultimately, over a five-year study period, 57 patients were randomized to pigtail and 63 to chest tube across four study sites. The majority of the enrollment occurred at one study site. Like a couple of the study sites had like three or four patients enrolled over the five years. So 
Calling this multi-center is a little bit of a stretch. The mean age was 55 years old, 80% male, almost all blood trauma, and the initial chest tube output across the two groups was 500 cc's, so pretty substantial hemothorax. In terms of the key outcomes, the failure rate was 11% in the pigtail group and 13% in the chest tube group, so statistically similar. Almost all the other outcomes were similar except the patient reported experience score, which was much, much, much better in the pigtail catheter group. And they have a a scale or something, and it was kind of goofy. The scale sort of tracks to one to five, where one is, eh, it hurt a little, but I could do that again. Three was, that was a very bad, painful experience for me. And five was, I'd rather die than have this again. And the big chest tube got a three, and the pigtail got a one. You know, interestingly, I wonder if we should use that same scale for EMA. People listen to EMA for the first time. No, I can't. I, my ego. We're just not ready. <laughs> We're not ready. But I do like the simplicity of it. Yeah. Not too bad. Eh, not the best. Never again. <laughs> yeah. I, I could use that on everything. Yeah. TV shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. This nine out of 10 thing is way too complicated. Visual yeah. analog scale. We got to go to 100 now. Come on, dude. One, two, three. Yeah, but three. The, the thing that's nice about the scale Red, is- Yellow, green. Yeah, but that's the thing that's nice about. about is they're all negative, right? There's, right. No, there's no positive on no, the scale, which makes sense. I did I think guess. about it. Yeah, there, there was no like, that was a pleasant experience. I would like to endure that again. I, I would really to. like yes. to do that again. I would, yeah. I'm soaking in it right now. Yeah. So in the end, this ends up still being a relatively small study, only about 55, 60 people in each group. The stats are messy. And as I stated, that's probably why this ends up in Journal of Acute Care Surgery instead of something bigger. And there are a bunch of caveats. First, all of these patients were relatively stable, right? They got informed consent. And though the chest tube output is significant at 500 cc's, I'm not sure that this represents those patients who, you know, got their chest crushed and you think there's fresh clotted blood in there. In those cases, I'm still thinking you probably need to use a big chest tube. This is people who, you know, had their CT scans and maybe the blood has already had time to sort of lice inside of the pleural space, et cetera. The other thing is that really we have to think of this as a single center study. I already said that, that you know, some of the satellite centers didn't do very many, and it's all from one university at the University of Arizona. My guess is that this is their little local system, and there's a couple of ancillary community sites where maybe the lead trauma surgeon occasionally rotates through and did that. But I think that's important because it means that those other sites, well, when you think about doing this, it matters like whether the nursing staff, the people who have to take care of these chest tubes, whether they're formal chest tubes or pigtails, really understand them and can manage them. If they're really good at it and you know, maybe they're better at avoiding the failure rate, and if they're not very good at it, maybe the pigtails fail more, they get kinked, they're not managed correctly, et cetera. So I think that you know, before we say this is a, multi, a true multi-center thing that is widely generalizable, we have to you know, sort of pump the brakes a little bit there. And this is also, I was going to say, a convenient sample, right? So there's probably some selection bias here. I mean, it can't be a full consecutive sample. So it's possible that when it's really bad, like the surgeons were just like, no, no, no. And they really only enrolled the, like the softy, softy of the the moderate ones. I think that's very likely. I think that that makes it even harder than to go, yeah, no, this is very compelling evidence because we don't even know what the denominator was and how sick all these other people were that they didn't enroll. Right. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, for me, from my perspective, I'm I'm not even considering this in a really serious, like, I think this guy's got a liter of blood in his chest. That's fresh blood. I'm putting in a big chest tube in that case. So yeah, it was definitely 
come down a bit from there. And then the final piece of it is that, again, because it really is one center, obviously this needs to be coordinated with whoever's going to be taking care of this tube, like your chest, whether it's a chest surgeon, a trauma surgeon, a general surgeon. If they're not on board with this, you're going to put this pigtail catheter in, which may or may not be a good idea. And I, you know, I'm, I'm tending to think that it's a good idea for relatively stable people with hemothoraces. But if that surgeon doesn't agree with that, they're just going to put a chest tube in as soon as the person hits the floor. And now you've just basically exposed the person to two potential things. So I just, until we're all on the same page, I don't recommend that you go out as emergency physicians and start doing this without coordinating with the trauma surgeons. Yeah. And maybe one more take home method. I'm just sort of thinking this Mm -hmm. as I listen to it is, you know, if you're working somewhere where you don't do a lot of chest tubes, you just haven't done one in a while. And you're like, God, I just this is going to be really stressful for me to figure out this chest tube. I said, but pigtail, that kind of like a paracentesis. I've done a few yeah. of those recently, you know, like, and you sort of have access to that. Or you've done it for pneumothorax relatively recently. Better than nothing, yeah. you know, like maybe that's another take home. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I honestly believe in the long run or, you know, in this next several years, we're going to find out that pigtail catheters for traumatic hemothorax, pneumothorax, et cetera, is perfectly adequate, except in the most unstable yeah, for most. cases. Yep. But I wanted to put all those caveats in so that you don't think like, oh, I, I need to change my practice immediately. There's still a lot of work to be done, even though this probably represents the best available evidence to date. Editor's commentary. This is a limited randomized controlled trial suggesting that small French pigtail catheters are sufficient for somewhat stable hemothoraces. These data are intriguing, but probably require more extensive external validation before being widely adopted. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Effect of amoxicillin dose and treatment duration on the need for antibiotic retreatment in children with community-acquired pneumonia, the CAPIT, randomized controlled trial. And this is by Bilicki et al. from JAMA. So although the evidence for treating pneumonia in adults with shorter courses of antibiotics is relatively robust at this point, that same level of evidence or quantity of evidence doesn't exist for pneumonia in kids. Now, Mike, I think it was you, recently covered the SAFER trial Mm -hmm. where they found, like in the sum of it anyway, equivalence between five and 10-day courses of amoxicillin for kids with community-acquired pneumonia. Now, this one is the CAPIT trial. Community-acquired pneumonia, a randomized control trial. I'm not sure where the it comes from. But uh, where they attempt to basically one-up you here. Yeah. They're going to look at the duration of therapy and the dose. Oh, snap. So they got you safer. Yeah. And they're like... Now we got a two-by-two two factorial design. They got a two-by-two uh, two factorial design. Uh, this multi-center, randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled, non-inferiority trial conducted at 28 hospitals in the UK and one at Ireland, where they compared both amoxicillin dose, so 35 to 50 mg per kg versus 75 to 90, sort of like the standard versus high dose, and duration, three days versus seven days, amongst kids six months old or greater, clinically diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia. Community-acquired pneumonia was defined I think they use that same British Thoracic Society definition a lot of these papers that we're seeing recently have been using. Cough, fever, labored breathing, and the primary outcome here was clinically indicated treatment with systemic antibiotics other than the trial medication 
for a respiratory infection, including community-acquired pneumonia within 28 days of randomization. They had to get another course of antibiotics. They randomized 824 patients. This is where it gets a little weird. They were a mix of discharged patients, about three quarters, 73%, and admitted patients who were admitted for less than 48 hours. So that kind of feels like an OBS status admission, something like that. About half and half male, female, median age, 2.5 years, and follow-up data available for 93% of the patient population. Overall, there were no differences in the primary outcome of needing another round of antibiotics by dose, 12.6% of the low-dose group versus 12.4% of the high-dose group, or by duration, 12.5% for short and long, both. The data are analyzed by group to which they were assigned. So this is an intent-to-treat analysis they give, and both comparisons satisfied their non-inferiority margin, which they had set at 8%. To ensure that the findings were not just a result of including well-appearing kids who may in truth not have needed antibiotics in the first place. Well, that's, that's the thing with a lot of these things, is all these kids have URIs and viral stuff anyway, so doesn't matter what antibiotic you treat them with. Right. So they tried to deal with that, where they looked at an analysis of a separate subgroup of kids with what they called severe community-acquired pneumonia, but then they defined that as having at least two abnormal physiologic parameters. So that's like respiratory rate and heart rate or something sure. like that. So and by definition, these kids really couldn't have severe community-acquired pneumonia because they weren't admitted. Well, some of them were for 48 hours. Whatever that means, yeah. You know? When, which is, and I agree with you completely, that's a very weird standard because you can't a priori necessarily know that, right? If you're deciding whether... So, no, so what they did was, it, like I said, it gets a little weird, okay? The ones who were admitted for longer than 48 hours are just out, and they take them out higher up on their diagram. Mm-hmm. So they enroll them, but then they're out, so... I said it gets a little strange, right? So in what they called the sicker group, they found the primary endpoint of needing more antibiotics to occur in 17% of the low dose versus 13% of the high dose. You know, some difference, but not that many kids in that group. And then short versus long, a little bit of a similar difference, 16% versus 15%. Now for inpatients, I did look at those as well. The primary endpoint occurred in 15% of the low dose versus 11% of the high dose, and same, 15% of the short versus 11% of the long. It seems like the ones who are a little bit sicker, however you want to measure, via higher respiratory rate or having to be in the hospital for eight hours, there's like this super short, super low dose, the like three-day low dose amox didn't do quite as well, but not in any kind of a statistically significant fashion, but they weren't powered for those subgroups either. Right, yeah. So in terms of secondary outcomes, Resolution of vomiting, fever, fast breathing, wheezing, getting back to normal activity, appetite, all that stuff was no different between the two groups. The only difference was in duration of cough, at least the one they said that was statistically significant, 12 days versus 10 days, 12 days in the short group. The short group had cough for a couple days longer. Adverse events were pretty common. 44% of them got diarrhea but did not differ by dose or duration. Oh, that's surprising. That's, I, have, I have surprising here <laughs> with a highlight yeah. underneath it. It is definitely surprising. So I think generally speaking, this is more data showing the efficacy of less total antibiotics for kids with these clinically diagnosed community-acquired pneumonias. But for me, this study is just not as cleanly done as that safer trial. Yeah. There's just like a lot of things going on, combining these patients who had a brief inpatient stay 
with those discharged from the ED, a little bit of a dilution in their findings when they look at sort of subgroups separately. They don't provide any per-protocol data in this, you know, non-inferiority trial. And a primary outcome that for me is maybe less clinically relevant than the one they use in that safer trial. So it's more data, but it's not perfect. Editor's commentary. In this two-by-two randomized control trial comparing both dose and duration of amoxicillin among kids with clinically diagnosed community-acquired pneumonia, the authors conclude that low dose and short duration were non-inferior to their counterparts, but temper their own enthusiasm by saying that when severity and some other factors were taken into account, longer durations or higher doses might be preferred. For me, I think that although not conclusive, this is more data that a lower total amount of antibiotics is probably fine for most kids with community-acquired pneumonia over the standard 10-day course. Abstract number four, anterior lateral versus anterior posterior electrode position for cardioverting atrial fibrillation. This is by Schmidt et al., and it's in circulation. All right, so what's going on here? Direct current cardioversion is obviously an option for restoring sinus rhythm in patients with AFib. We also know that AFib is actually relatively shock refractory or resistant, meaning that it often requires either high voltages or multiple shock attempts to convert it. In the late 90s and early 2000s, two small papers were published demonstrating that the anterior posterior pad positioning was superior to the anterior lateral positioning for cardioversion of AFib. However, these authors point out that that was 20-year-old electricity, and new electricity is totally different. So I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but there's some truth to it because back 20 years ago, we used monophasic defibrillators, and now we use biphasic defibrillators, generally speaking. And they go through some electrophysiology in there that frankly seems more conjecture than true science, but that might explain why a biphasic waveform going through the anterolateral approach might be better than a monophasic going through the anterior posterior, if that makes sense. So basically, they're saying the new electricity matters. New electricity, new position. A couple very small recent papers have suggested that this might be true, but they're just too small. They're very small. So these authors conduct what they call the, quote, definitive study on the topic. That's right. Wow, in, I should pay attention. Quote, and they indeed did not hold back on the acronym. This is the electrical position in cardioverting atrial fibrillation trial. The God trial? The epic trial. <laughs> That's not as good as the perfect trial I know. a few months back. That was, uh, there is no perfect study except for the perfect study. Wow, but the epic good study job, is pretty epic. epic. <laughs> it's pretty epic. So... It was, in fact, a multi-center randomized open-label trial structured as a superiority trial. They randomized almost 500 patients in AFib who were scheduled for elective cardioversion at three sites in Denmark. 234 had the anterior-posterior positioning of the pads, and 233 had the anterolateral pad positioning. The key outcome was cardioversion to sinus rhythm after one biphasic shock, which I actually like. As an ER doc, like, you know, secondary outcomes they do is like, well, after five shocks, how many, it was four shocks, how many are in sinus. But as an ER doc, I want to know, like, what am I going to get with the first shock? You know, I get start getting nervous when things don't work after once or twice. 
And then there were some safety outcomes like the propensity to degenerate into another rhythm that's bad, skin burning, things like that. So what happened? Mean age of the participants was almost 70. Two-thirds of them were men, mostly patients with persistent AFib, but there were some like 80%, but some had paroxysmal AFib. 54% of those in the anterior lateral pad positioning were converted with one shock, 54%, so just about half. However, only 33% were converted with just one shock in the anterior posterior positioning. So that's you know a pretty sizable difference, an absolute difference of 20% number needed to treat five. And this may be the most important finding of the paper for us in emergency medicine, frankly, that about half of the AFib patients didn't convert on the first shock regardless. Ultimately, after four shocks, 93% of the anterior lateral group converted versus 85 of the anterior posterior group. Again, statistically significant, but that margin had tightened up quite considerably. The results held across a variety of subgroups, you know, older, younger, persistent, paroxysmal, etc. In fact, there was no subgroup that favored the anterior posterior positioning, including varying levels of obesity that were assessed. They had like the class one, two, three, etc. Adverse events were rare and statistically similar in each group. So you know, at the end, I actually suppose this is pretty good evidence that anterior lateral positioning is better for cardioverting AFib than the anterior posterior positioning. There's a lot of residual questions. Remember, this is stable patients undergoing elective cardioversion for atrial fibrillation, not unstable ED patients rolling in off the street who are in VTAC, right? So I don't think it would be wise for us to extrapolate this too far into the other rhythm space. But, you know, for me, since AFib is probably one of the more common things that we cardiovert, I'm willing to say this is pretty good evidence. I'm willing to start with that anterior lateral pad positioning for both. Now, ACLS allows positioning in either way. So it's not like you're really changing practice dramatically or anything like that. But it's usually easier to put it on the lateral side as opposed to the posterior side when you're trying to turn this person over, especially if they're kind of sick. So I'm good for it, actually. I think this is pretty good. Editor's commentary. This is a relatively large study of patients undergoing elective cardioversion for atrial fibrillation. The anterior lateral pad positioning appears to be superior to the anterior posterior pad positioning in both first shock cardioversion success as well as ultimate cardioversion success. Providers should be aware that only about 50% of patients in the best case scenario converted on the first shock. Abstract number five. Accuracy of a rapid glial fibrillary acidic protein ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 test for the prediction of intracranial injuries on head CT after mild traumatic brain injury. This is by Bazarian et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So in patients with head trauma, the only way to definitively rule out intracranial injury is via CT. Postmortem. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yes. But high rates of negative exams, that is to say, we get a lot of CTs, we don't find a lot of stuff, has led a lot of people to say, "Mm, we're probably overusing CT in these patients, particularly those with sort of minor head trauma. Not missing clinically important bleeds is definitely paramount, and clinical decision instruments are supposed to help us decrease this unnecessary scanning, but the authors of this paper argue that they are infrequently used in the real-world clinical practice. So in 2018, These same authors published the ALERT TBI trial, 
showing that a blood test using this combination of a glial of fibrillary acidic protein and ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 whew, had potential to reduce unnecessary scanning. That's weird because I thought it was hydro- hydrolase L2. Are you yeah, sure? this just shows how behind you are. Well, I covered that paper, so now I feel really stupid. So, you know, these are basically proteins that are sort of on the other side of the blood-brain barrier. So if they're out there... They have no business being in your blood. That's right. So maybe that indicates a problem. They said that it had potential. They concluded in that paper to reduce unnecessary scanning. And this data from that paper led to its FDA approval. I think when you covered it... Mm-hmm. It wasn't FDA approved at that point in time, but still isn't really used. And the authors are kind of saying that's probably because the lab-based turnaround time is pretty long. The sucker takes like four hours to result or something. So by that time, the patient's like ready to go home. We've already CT'd them. Or they've herniated. And it's like, that was, was, I wish I made a terrible mistake. Shouldn't have ordered that test. So this Don't take them to the OR until we get the GFAP back yet. This study is basically a repeat of that exact trial using the same blood samples, all the same blood bank samples, but just running them on a point-of-care ISTAT-style test, measuring both these two things simultaneously. And this ISTAT test was FDA-approved in 2021. So you can access this thing if you want to. It's a prospective observational study from 15 sites in the U.S. and seven in Europe of a convenient sample of adults with non-penetrating traumatic brain injury in a GCS between 9 and 15 who got a head CT and a blood sample for research purposes. And importantly, the blood sample was taken usually about three hours after they got there, which is even further outside of the injury. So basically, they're sort of making sure there's some time for that ubiquitin to get into that. Well, that's just how it was done in the original trial. And these are just the banked samples, right? So what this new point-of-care version does is it gives a bedside result in like 15 minutes if you were to drop the blood in, and it just says elevated or not elevated. It gives some specifics and numbers and stuff, but that's how it reads out on the little thing. So of the 2,000-ish patients from the ALERT TBI trial, about 1,900 had valid CT scans and plasma still available for testing, right? Because they had to have enough of it banked, et cetera, et cetera. They excluded 17 more because they wanted to focus on mild head injuries, those with a GCS of 13 to 15. 98.8% had a GCS of 14 or 15, and basically 95% had a GCS of 15. So they were all almost GCS 15, very mild head injury. Of these 1,900 subjects, 6.3% or 120 had a positive head CT, and 62% had an elevated test. And they give the test characteristics, basically saying sensitivity, about 96%, specificity, about 40%, and a negative predictive value of 0.993. There were five false negatives, and they said none of the five required a neurosurgical intervention, although they don't comment on any other intervention they might have needed or admission or observation. Or how many neurosurgical interventions were needed at all. That's exactly right. Because if nobody needed a neurosurgical intervention, then, then it's what's just, the point of doing the yeah, test like in this just, GCS 15? Yeah. I totally agree with that statement. Without reviewing the full data from the initial trial, the one you covered, I think, three years ago, something like that, this point of care device performed similarly, but just not quite as good. They had three false negatives in the first one and five false negatives in this one. So just so you have a sense of how the two compare against each other. Now, 
In my mind, there's some pretty important limitations to consider before you go out and buy this thing, start using your ED. The first is that it was a convenient sample of patients, right? That is true for the original trial as well. But there's two big ones that are new for this one. The first is we have no idea how this test compares to existing clinical decision instruments or what the provider would have done without the test, right? Because for it to be useful, not only does it have to be useful in a good direction, but it has to be doing something better than you're already doing, right? So it needs to change management in some meaningful way. But importantly, right here and throughout the whole manuscript, they're kind of marketing as as a real-time bedside point-of-care decision aid. But like I mentioned before, the blood samples were drawn like hours after the injury. So when I would want to use this thing is right up front. They come in, they have this mild injury, look pretty good. I'm thinking about just sending this guy home. I don't want to obs, I don't want to do anything. Yeah. I want to get the test, right? Right. And they have no data on that at all. Like yeah. you said before, does it take a while for the stuff to leak out? Is it instantaneous? So really what they're saying is these test characteristics they're given are for if the test was done like four hours after they right. hit the door of your ED. And when you think about it that way, I'm just not sure how useful this thing is at all yep. without knowing how useful it is up front. So that's something that's kind of skimmed over in this manuscript, and I don't even think it's mentioned at all. It's not in the limitation section. So worth knowing about if you're interested in sort of these biomarkers and stuff for head trauma, maybe good reading this paper and learning a little bit more about these proteins. Editor's commentary. The authors present observational data using a point-of-care glial fibrillary acidic protein and ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 test and suggest that a negative test has real value in reducing unnecessary head CT scans among patients with minor head trauma. This may be true and the test is FDA approved, but for me to actually use it, I would need to see data from patients with blood drawn at the time the decision is being made to scan, more near their presentation, not hours later, and see that it outperforms existing clinical decision instruments. Abstract number six, thrombectomy for anterior circulation stroke beyond six hours from last known well time, a systematic review and individual patient data meta-analysis by Joven et al., and this is in The Lancet. I'm not going to belabor this paper. I think we can do it relatively quickly, even though it's an important topic, and that's mostly because in the systematic review, they've ultimately find six randomized controlled trials. I think we've covered all of them in EMA over the years. At issue is whether thrombectomy is useful for patients who are more than six hours since their last known well time. The DAWN trial, I think, was the first one to consider such patients between sort of six and 24 hours. But subsequently, several other trials have done similar things. This is an individual-level meta-analysis that really does two things for us. First, it pools all of the data across all these trials so we can get a more precise estimate of the treatment effect of thrombectomy. Each of these individual trials was like 100 patients or a little bit less, so that you know the confidence limits around these things were pretty wide. By pooling them all together, we sharpen those confidence intervals quite substantially. But it also, and probably more importantly, allows for an analysis of patients who were sort of later presenters versus earlier presenters. That is, most of these trials included people from, you know, the six hours to 24 hour window. But when they looked at them, they're like, yeah, there are like 12 patients that were in the early phase and 30 in the later phase. 
looks a little bit different, but hard to tell because the numbers are so small. Now we pull it all together. We can actually separate out those two cohorts of patients and see if the effect of thrombectomy is preserved in the later arrivers versus the sort of early late arrivers, if you will. So bottom line, the authors did their search. They actually named their meta-analysis, which normally I would not go over, except that, and it's a totally convoluted name, so I'm not even going to do that. The ultimate acronym is Aurora. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, right. this is as close. Now we've got a ranking. We've got size the, matters. We've got the perfect trial. <laughs> the perfect trial. We've got the epic trial. Anything that says size matters in the title. And now we've got the Aurora trial, the Aurora which in analysis. my mind, Aurora analysis. It may not be the perfect trial. I'm not sure what you're about to tell me here or analysis, but it's the perfect acronym. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what they put there anyway. For the record, just, you know, for all you listeners out there. It's spelled oh, with you a guys, U, you know, not like how Aurora is supposed to be spelled. You know, you spell it, you're spelled with a U. Just, just let me bask in the glory of this moment. U is spelled with a U. I you agree know what? With that. If we, I'm telling you this right now, we have an Aurora trial on EMA. We're, Mike and I are going to be doing this for 50 more years. We're never going to see the Menchin trial, okay? Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. So whatever, they found six randomized controlled trials involving 505 individuals, 250 in the intervention, 250 in the control. All the patients presented between 6 and 24 hours after the last known well time and were not treated with IV TPA, just thrombectomy. Outcomes hugely favor thrombectomy. The common odds ratio was 2.54 favoring thrombectomy. This is statistically significant but has no intrinsic meaning. To put it into sort of like clinical terms, 46% of patients in the thrombectomy group had a, a modified Rankin scale of 0 to 2 at 90 days, compared with only 19% in the medical management group. You know, that's an absolute number of like 27% number needed to treat of, you know, 4. And we often talk about numbers that needed to treat for thrombectomy in the 3 to 5 range. Mortality, interestingly, was similar between the two groups. So although it produced better functional outcomes, it didn't save lives. Interestingly, and this is like that secondary point that they had, the treatment effect was larger in patients presenting later. So patients presenting 12 to 24 hours later benefited more from thrombectomy than those who presented 6 to 12 hours. And it's important for me to say this. I say they benefited more. That's, that's a little bit misleading. They benefited more than the control group. So people who present early always had better outcomes than people who presented late. But if that relative to the control, those who weren't treated with thrombectomy, the ones who presented late did much better than the ones who presented early. Again, relative to the control. So thrombectomy for large vessel occlusive stroke works. And this paper highlights that. Keep ordering CTAs. What am I supposed to say? There are a couple of other interesting findings. For example, in the early trials, the, the DAWN trial and the DIFFUSE trial, these sort of like the first two, they required a perfusion mismatch to enter the trial. So you had to have like an anterior circulation stroke and a clot visible on the CTA, a large vessel occlusion on the CTA. And you had to have, you know, they did all these volumetric calculations that you know, this perfusion mismatch. Those two trials required that. The subsequent four did not require that. It was enough to just have an anterior circulation stroke and a clot. And the outcomes and the treatment effect size was the same in both sets of trials. So this is a little bit more evidence that you probably don't need that perfusion stuff that actually is a little bit time-consuming and requires some proprietary 
CT scanning protocols, et cetera. And then finally, the treatment effects were similar for those who were the wake-up strokes versus those who were the unwitnessed strokes versus those who were witnessed but just sort of delayed arrival strokes. So overall, good information for us to understand you know, who to use thrombectomy in and to remember that even in very late presenters, they still benefit a lot, actually maybe disproportionately more from sort of the early late presenters. And, uh, and Dr. Joven, thanks for the shout out. Editor's commentary. This systematic review and individual level meta-analysis of randomized controlled data demonstrates markedly improved outcomes for patients with anterior circulation, large vessel occlusion, undergoing thrombectomy compared to medical therapy. The treatment effect is preserved for patients from six hours to 24 hours, and in fact is actually larger for people who are later presenting in that six to 24 hour window. Abstract number seven, steroid use in non-oxygen requiring COVID-19 patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This is by Sahu et al. And this is from QJM, Monthly Journal of the Association of Physicians. Business Association of Physicians. We ever covered a paper from this journal? Is it Quality Journal Monthly or something? Is that what it's called? It might be. Mm. I can't remember. The reason I ask is because this is a really good paper. Okay. So I'm sort of surprised that it wasn't in something I had heard of a little bit more frequently. But over the last two years, we've learned a lot about how to treat COVID-19, and corticosteroids, for the most part, have emerged as the mainstay of most treatment algorithms. I'm sure that's true at every hospital, everyone listening to this, for severely ill patients. And data from the recovery trial showed that dexamethasone resulted in a mortality benefit among intubated patients and those requiring supplemental oxygen. And further research is still ongoing focused on figuring out optimal timing, optimal duration, type of steroid, and dose of steroid that should be given. However, at this point, the majority of infections that we are seeing from COVID result in relatively mild illness. And the evidence for benefit or harm from steroids in this cohort is much less clear. So this is a meta-analysis assessing the effect of steroids among non-oxygen-requiring COVID-19 infected patients in terms of mortality, proportion of mild COVID-19 patients progressing to severe disease, duration of fever, duration of viral clearance when assessed, and hospital length of stay. So they identified seven total studies, four of which were randomized control trial meeting their sort of search criteria, consisting of 2,214 non-oxygen-requiring COVID-19 patients. 833 were randomized to steroids, and about 1,300, more than that, were randomized to no steroids. Methylprednisolone was used in six of the studies, and dexamethasone was used in that recovery trial. The odds of death was higher in the steroid group at an odds ratio of 1.35. In the three out of seven studies that reported on disease progression, the odds of progression to severe disease was also higher in the steroid group at an odds ratio of six. In the two out of the seven studies that reported on fever, duration of fever was longer in the steroid arm, seven and a half days versus six and a half days. In the five out of seven studies that reported on viral clearance, mean duration of clearance was higher in the steroid arm by about two and a half days. In the four out of seven studies that report on hospital length of stay, hospital length of stay was also longer in the steroid arm by about two and a half days. So 
This is a well, very well actually conducted meta-analysis with some pretty impressive statistical methods, but there definitely was a good deal of heterogeneity between the trials, right? And I think this is what prevents them from just being very definitively anti-steroids is saying, hey, there was like a difference in terms of the patients enrolled, the types of steroids, the dose, the duration, the way they measured these different outcomes. You know, they sort of tried to group them all together like they do in a meta-analysis. But the truth is, they were very, very different from each other. But, you know, all signs point to harm for mm-hmm. steroids, for people who don't need oxygen, who have COVID. And in this meta-analysis, they didn't assess other short and long-term harms associated with steroid use, like which we talk about a lot on this program. So for those of you who are sort of letting indication creep, mm-hmm. make your steroids for the patients who are going home, that's probably the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Just yesterday I was working and I had some, uh, a real COVID case, not an Omicron case, but a lady who was unvaccinated came in and she had been seen in the ER a day or two before and showed me her prescriptions and she had a prescription for steroids. And I was just sort of, I was thinking about this paper at the time. I'm like, yeah, people yeah, because I think have stretched that, you know, quite a bit because she wasn't a little on the sicker side, but she was not oxygen requiring. They've definitely stretched it. And the thing is too, in recovery, they included these patients, you know? So if you're just like, if you're going very straightforward, sort of like mind brain association, recovery gave a bunch of steroids. They included people who didn't have oxygen. Recovery was positive. I should give them steroids. You know, I think if you're, that's why it's important every once in a while to revisit these papers and look at these meta-analyses because it's quite clear to me that steroid is doing harm for these patients. Editor's commentary. In this well-conducted meta-analysis focused on non-oxygen-requiring COVID-19 patients, the authors found all measured outcomes were worse among patients who received steroids compared with those who did not. Heterogeneity between studies makes definitive conclusions impossible, but all indications are that steroids have more potential for harm than good in these patients. We must be careful not to fall victim to indication creep, and when thinking about systemic steroids and COVID, please save them for the sick patients. Abstract number eight, randomized clinical trial comparing helmet continuous positive airway pressure to face mask continuous positive airway pressure. For the Treatment of Acute Respiratory Failure in the Emergency Department, this is by Adi et al., and it's in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, despite the fact that the study was conducted at a single center in Malaysia. 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 The Malaysian Prime Minister. Yeah. (laughs) Zoolander. CPAP devices, continuous positive airway pressure, amazing. Lately, I've been a little bit more retrospective, whatever thinking about how practice was when I first started in emergency medicine, which is now, you know, over 20 years ago. And we didn't have all this fancy, you know, CPAP, non-invasive mechanical ventilation stuff. People would come in and CHF and by God, you got intubated. That's what happened. Yeah. I was just, you know, just thinking about all that same stuff. Just thinking back over my life as emergency medicine doctor, just the other day, we put an IJ in somebody. And I was telling, you know, the residents that we used to use finder needles, yeah. you know, we'd use a finder needle and then put the other needle. And they've looked at me like I was completely crazy. Yeah. They're like, why don't you use the ultrasound? I'm like, we didn't have an ultrasound then. They're like, when we started using the ultrasound, I used to draw the line on the neck. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just be like, look, there it is. But it was like some old vag probe that I was using. At least to like highlight it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, there's times so many are, things. Times are changing. But, you know, and there have been, like we've said, a bunch of things that have like emerged. The bougie, we didn't have that thing. That's yeah. for sure. That thing popped up. You're like, wait a minute, this makes intubation not dangerous. That's amazing. But one of the things is CPAP was yeah. really, I mean, that happened, that sort of transition happened during my residency where we started using it. And these patients that six months before, 100% intubated, no question about it, were like putting them on this stuff. And then two hours later, they're not even going to the unit. You know, it's amazing, amazing technology. The chief problem with them is that a relatively large fraction of patients who get the, you know, face mask CPAP report significant discomfort and even, you know, obviously a sense of suffocating sometimes. And that can occasionally limit its use. A few years ago, we covered a paper looking at a novel helmet-based CPAP device that basically looks like a deep sea diver's helmet and creates a continuous positive airway pressure environment inside that helmet that should give you the benefit of CPAP without having a face mask forcibly strapped over the nose and or mouth. These received additional attention during the COVID pandemic because the outflow from the helmet can be controlled. So you have like sort of an inlet thing that blows up the helmet, and then there's an outlet valve. So you can actually control the airflow out as opposed to it sort of like spraying all over the room. This is one of the few studies from the emergency department looking at this technology, and it's a single-site open-label trial of helmet CPAP versus face mask CPAP for adult patients with acute respiratory failure due to either pulmonary edema or acute exacerbation of COPD. Subjects were all consentable and had to be consented to be randomized and enter the study. So just to give you a little flavor of how sick the patients were, they're probably pretty sick, they needed CPAP, but they weren't the crashing and burning type that we're like, you know, sometimes we are confronted with. The outcomes assessed fell into basically two buckets. The first bucket is physiologic stuff. And that's like their oxygen level, their, so the PaO2, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, stuff like that. And then the second bucket was creature comfort stuff. Like how much did you like it? Did you feel really dry and desiccated? Or was it a you know, pleasurable experience? Similar to the chest tube one. The, yeah. This was bad, but I wouldn't mind doing it again too. You put that thing on me again, I'm stabbing you in the neck. Okay. The results were overwhelmingly in favor of the helmet CPAP. Respiratory rates dropped more in the helmet group than the face mask group. And this was at one hour. They put them on this thing. They measured it before, right as they were hooking them up and an hour later. So yeah, respiratory rate dropped more. Heart rate dropped more. PaO2 rose more. PCO2 actually was unchanged. Dyspnea scores favored the helmet and reports of discomfort hugely favored the helmet. Finally, and this was sort of maybe one of the more intriguing findings, 4.4% of those in the helmet group were intubated, failed their CPAP trial, versus 18% in the face mask CPAP group. So a very large number. A number, frankly, that's a little bit too large. I'm trying to imagine the patients that are consentable that you put on CPAP, how many of them ultimately get- Not one out of five. Not one out of five. So you know, maybe there's some stuff going on. So I, I mean, frankly, I think the results look a little too good to be really true and might be driven somewhat by the unblinded nature of things. You know, these authors were not funded by the manufacturer. This is not an industry-sponsored thing. But, you know, authors are the way authors are. They're doing this, investigating this new technology, and they might have an interest in sort of seeing better results. I hope they weren't intubating people inappropriately on the other side. But, you know, things do happen when you're unblinded. I have a question about the helmet, just generally. Yes, go ahead. Is, it's a great question. Because we haven't Great question, great it, question. You know, no. Thank you. And most of mine are. Please see the Aurora (laughs) trial for details. But with the CPAP and BiPAP, the traditional nasal, oral, whatever, they kind of have to be with it. 
to yes. be able to use it, right? right. Like you have to have some, it can't just be totally out of it and sonorous and stuff like that. Is that true for the helmet too? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Now I, I'm going to answer your, your question stages. First of all, it is a good question. Second of all, I have never used this helmet. Well, I know we work in the same right. place, you know, but, but I have watched a bunch of videos of it. I watched like how they hook it up and things like that to see like how difficult it is. How big is it? And it is like sort of a plasticky helmet. It's not actually like a big fixed metal, you know, with glass divers helmet kind of thing. So in a sense, it looks like a person could actually be a little more sonorous in there. Because it sounds like they should be able yeah. to. That's... Now, it doesn't deliver bi-level oxygen, right? So it's just CPAP. I see. Okay. So okay. usually when I'm thinking about the like the sonorous person, it's that bi-level, that yeah. big blow in there. Like if they vomited or something, that would like push it all up into the Oh, into that would lungs. be bad if they vomited in this helmet. <laughs> Think about that. It definitely would be. And- Honestly, I watched a couple of videos of how they assemble it and they look like they're sort of these manufacturer videos. So it's like, you know, these really pretty nurses and RTs that are doing it. It looks very easy. And there's some guy who's very happy to have this thing put on his head. But each time I watch it, they're like, yes. And all you have to do to inflate it is hold the anti-asphyxia device and then watch the thing. And I'm like, wait, what did you say? <laughs> yes. Yeah. All of these have something called an anti-asphyxia valve on them. So I guess if you accidentally plug that in the wrong direction, no counterclockwise. <laughs> I said counterclockwise. And I guess it makes sense because you're in this fully contained yeah. thing. If like the oxygen stopped flowing or something like that, you would be in this, you know, things. So there are some nuances and some complications and I don't truly know. Maybe it's a lot more complicated, requires a lot more RT time to sort of sit with and manage. It just seems like if there wasn't something like that. We would like we'd have this, or other hospitals. But we you know, know adoption have is slow in these kinds of things. And right now, everything I saw, I think there were like maybe two manufacturers of something hmm. that looked like this, and maybe it's just still. Expensive well, it sounds kind of cool. Stuff. Yeah, my takeaway of this and the other literature, we've covered an, at yeah. least one other paper on this, and we've seen it sprinkled throughout the literature. My take on it is, it might be pretty cool. It might be worth checking out. So if it wasn't too expensive and you didn't require all your RTs to have to undergo 50 hours of in-service training, I would give it a whirl. So if you have it at your hospital in your ICU and you want to check it out, by all means, I think I would give it a chance. If you don't, I'm not saying that this data is enough and strong enough that you must absolutely go to your hospital administration and demand they purchase these things. Editor's Commentary this is a small and fairly limited randomized controlled trial of helmet CPAP compared to face mask CPAP for patients with respiratory failure due to COPD or pulmonary edema. The outcomes heavily favor the helmet device, including improvement in physiologic parameters, patient comfort, and intubation rates. The overall small nature and unblinded nature of the study render these results more hypothesis generating than definitive. Abstract number nine. The incidence of central line-associated bloodstream infection following central venous catheter placement in the ED. This by Einhofer et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The decision to place a central line in a critically ill patient is definitely not to be taken lightly, right? Because as though they may be incredibly necessary, potentially allow you to give life-saving medications, they also come with known risks and potential for harm, right? And some of the risks are sort of line-specific, pneumothorax with subclavian, things like that. But one of the generalizable, I guess, among all the lines, potential harm is the potential of developing a central line-associated bloodstream infection, what they call a CLABSI in this paper, which can not only impact That's morbidity and mortality. That's what everybody calls it, by the way. Is that right? 
Yeah. Clampsy? Yeah. I like it. Don't know why I've never used that term before. Not everybody. Just the kind of doctor you are. Just the kind of roll with the punches <laughs> in the trenches. 20 years ago, we called that central line infection. Now we yeah. call it clampsy. That's how it more, we roll. You're just 20 showing your years age, ago? buddy. I'm not so sure. So we know that if you get one of these infections, it can add weeks to your hospital length of stay, thousands of dollars to overall cost of care, in addition to just very bad clinical outcomes. There has been a massive effort to reduce these over the last few decades in terms of sort of policies and procedures around central lines, provider education about the importance of doing things sterilely, even sort of suggested locations of where you should put the lines with some sort of thought as being dirtier than others, and these prepackaged sterile kits. You know, I know now that you said it from the other thing, I'm thinking about when we did central lines as residents, Mm -hmm. right? It was like, you had to get your own betadine, like that big tube. It didn't even like come in the kit, something to clean it with. Well, the kit just had two needles, a finder needle <laughs> and a central line needle. Yeah. You know, now I don't even know what to do with that finder needle. Yeah, it really was like half the size of our current like IND kits. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So you had to go, fi- you had to find all that stuff. You had to find the betadine to put on there and there all no the stuff. no bio patches or any of that stuff. That's right. So it's really, we've come a long way, right? in terms of trying to reduce these infections. And I think that, particularly for people listening to this program, historically, the ED has taken a lot of the blame on this, right? Saying, like, our lines are terrible, they're filthy. People going so far as to say, like, at some places, when they get up to the ICU, they're like, let's just replace the line. Yeah. Because the ED line must have not been They must have wiped in feces before they put it in, yeah. So... The authors from this paper conduct a retrospective chart review from a level one trauma center with the goal of identifying the rate of CLABSIs among lines placed in the ED compared with lines placed in the ICU. The methods includes a little bit of information about the chart review process and how they dealt with ambiguous findings and how they defined a CLABSI, but not really at the level of detail needed to ensure that the data collection was adequate, reliable, and it doesn't appear that the abstractors were blinded to the study purpose or the study hypothesis. Of the just about 1,200 patients with sterile lines, they excluded the crash lines, like the trauma patient where you splashed on the betadine. They're the ones you did with the kit and you had the drape and all that stuff. They found no statistically significant difference in infection rates by hospital location. 2.5 per 1,000 catheter days for lines placed in the ED versus 4.6 for 1,000 catheter days for lines placed in the ICU. Of interest, the anatomic vein preference did vary between the ED and the ICU, where in the ED, we did a lot more femoral lines. Over half the lines were femoral lines, 52%, right? That was not true in the ICU. The ICUs preferred the subclavian and the IJ, and I was kind of surprised by that. These weren't the trauma patients, you know, or you like needed to get in a line quickly and someone's doing CPR. It was stable enough to get the full sterile procedure. Over half the lines were femoral. But, you know, maybe that speaks to our good technique because those are supposed to be the dirtiest, you know, and still we did better, better than the ICU. So the issue with this paper is that the methods are pretty scant is the truth of it, you know, and I feel that as all the authors are from the ED, this definitely introduces the chance for some bias. But I like the message. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective chart review, the authors did not find a difference in infection rates between sterile lines placed in the ED 
compared with those placed in the ICU. I love the bottom line, but in truth, the methods are a little scant and the findings are at high risk of bias due to the all-emergency department author team. I want to believe. I really do. But if nothing else, this paper serves as a reminder to use the best possible sterile technique when possible during central line placement. Quick take. Abstract number 10, and this is a quick take. It's effect of IV or IO calcium versus saline on return of spontaneous circulation in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized control trial. It's by Valentin et al., and it's in JAMA. So out-of-hospital cardiac arrest has dismal outcomes, especially if the initial rhythm is not shockable. Basically, medical therapy hasn't improved outcomes in this group over the past couple of decades. This hasn't stopped people from trying different stuff. This includes you know, using escalating doses of epinephrine, vasopressin, steroids, different types of antidysrhythmics, etc. Calcium chloride is one of these medications that is frequently tried during code events. It has some inotropic support kind of idea. So some people like to toss it on there towards the end of a ACLS algorithm. In this trial, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims were randomized to calcium versus saline placebo following epinephrine during the cardiac arrest event. They were allowed to administer the study drug or the placebo twice during the, the resuscitation. Patients with known or suspected hypocalcemia or hyperkalemia were excluded. Obviously, it's unethical not to give people calcium if they're severely hyperkalemic. But otherwise, they were randomized, you know, one-to-one. The study was performed in Denmark, and the primary outcome was return of spontaneous circulation. Secondary outcomes are the stuff that we really care about, alive at 30 days, and the other one that's really important, alive with favorable neurologic outcome at 30 days. The methods, they're like pristine, totally excellent, which makes the results that much more disappointing. The study was stopped early for futility after enrolling 400 of a planned 640 patients. The calcium group had ROSC 19% of the time the placebo group, 27% of the time. 5% of the calcium group were alive at 30 days. 9% of the placebo group alive at 30 days. Same trend for favorable neurologic outcomes. There were no subgroups that appeared favorable for calcium versus the placebo. Shockable, not shockable, whatever it is. So routine calcium chloride does not work. If anything, there's a hint towards worse outcomes. Stay away. Editor's Commentary Calcium chloride administration in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is not shown to have any hint of improved outcomes. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Efficacy of inhaled seclesonide for outpatient treatment of adolescents and adults with symptomatic COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Clemency et al. from JEMA Internal Medicine. This one is a quick take. So inhaled corticosteroids are generally safe and have been proposed as a COVID-19 treatment because unlike systemic steroids, they have targeted anti-inflammatory effects in the lungs. Recently, I covered the principal trial where inhaled budesonide was found to shorten time to recovery by a couple of days among unvaccinated adults with COVID-19. In this phase three multi-center double-blind randomized control trial from 10 centers in the U.S., a total of 400 patients with non-hospitalized, confirmed, laboratory-confirmed COVID infection were randomized to receive either a seclesonide MDI with two puffs twice a day or placebo two puffs twice a day for 30 days. 
The mean age was 43 years and 55% of the patients were female. The median time to resolution of all COVID symptoms was exactly the same in both groups at 19 days. Secondary outcomes all looked the same across the groups as well. They had a whole bunch of them, except for ED visits within 30 days. And this is sort of why this paper has been sort of a little bit on the blogosphere, because again, this is one of those where if you look at the infographic for the paper, it says, you know, cyclesonide reduced ED visits with people who confirmed COVID infection by 80%, which is true, but the raw numbers were, you know, 1% and 5%, both pretty low. So this should be hypothesis generating at best. This was not the point of the paper, and we have no clue if these ED visits were even COVID-related or not COVID-related. So one major difference between this trial and principle is that in the previous study, the patients were older and had a higher incidence of comorbidities and things like that, whereas this one, they were a little bit younger and healthier. And again, we have no idea what the benefit would be among vaccinated patients or those infected with new strains of the COVID virus as they come along. Editor's commentary. In this randomized control trial, the authors did not find a benefit in mortality, admissions, or resolution of symptoms with inhaled cyclesonide over placebo in relatively healthy, non-admitted patients with confirmed COVID-19. Abstract number 12, Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Pediatric Retropharyngeal and Parapharyngeal Abscesses by Gonka et al. in Pediatrics. And you know, I was excited for this paper. We almost never see anything about retropharyngeal or parapharyngeal abscesses. So I really thought this was going to be useful. But there's some really weird stuff in this paper that makes it ultimately just very difficult to understand. Yeah, because I remember even when we were doing paper selection, we both were kind of like, oh, Ooh, yeah. this one's good. And when you got this one, I was a little bummed. Yeah, you were a now, little jelly. Well, yeah, now, I, now I feel like I dodged on a me. bullet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically the authors were interested in the question of what role corticosteroids play in mitigating the need for surgery to treat these two deep space infections. Seems reasonable enough. They conducted a retrospective analysis of the pediatric Health Information System dataset. This is the PHIS, and it's one that's often used in the pediatric research world, and we've covered information from this dataset many, many times over the years. It involves some 50 pediatric hospitals that share clinical and administrative data. In this particular case, they looked at children aged between two months and eight years who were diagnosed with parapharyngeal or retropharyngeal abscess over a three-year period that ended in 2019. And then they basically divide this cohort of patients into those who got steroids and those who didn't get steroids. The key outcome was the incidence of surgical drainage between the two groups. Ultimately, they found 2,200 patients with the disease. 75% of them, so 1,600 some odd patients, did not receive steroids. So the majority did not receive steroids. And 500 and some odd, 25%, did. Interestingly, this varied a lot by institution. When you looked at a hospital specifically, some hospitals gave 50% of their cases steroids, whereas other hospitals, it was like less than 10%. So there's a huge amount of variation at the hospital level here. The kids otherwise mostly look similar across the groups based on sort of crude observable data that was available, age, things like that. The surgery rate was 22% in the steroid group. So the need to go in and cut this thing out was 22% in the steroid group versus 51% in the no-steroid group. So a massive 
statistically significant difference favoring steroids, which, you know, of course is not causal, but very interesting. Now, normally I would say we can't infer causality and it's likely that some people in the no steroid group were sicker, which is true. But in this case, they really sort of forced a wedge between the two groups through their study methodology. And that's what's so weird. What they did is they categorized people who got steroids on day one. You showed up to the ED, you're like, oh, this kid's sick, give him steroids, and who got surgery on day one, right? They categorized that group of people. You can imagine them being sort of the sickest ones. They got everything, the kitchen sink thrown at them and had to go to the OR. They said, you know what? It's not fair to put them in the steroid group because, you know, they had steroids for like two hours. Steroids didn't have a chance to work. Right. And they said, well, some of these people might have got steroids because in the post-op phase, sometimes they give steroids to decrease swelling that's related to the cutting, not related to the underlying pathophysiology of the disease. So it's not fair to put them in, in the steroid group. You know, I could sort of see that. But what they did is they put them in the no-steroid group. They said they're the non-steroid group. They didn't just separate out those groups. And so, so essentially, that forces all the really sick people into the non-steroid group. And that's just weird to me. I have, they don't tell us how many there were in there. So I don't know how many of these kids in the no steroid group actually were sick and got steroids, which makes understanding this treatment effect size basically impossible. The only thing I can really take out of this paper is that there's a wide range of behaviors with respect to steroid use for these two conditions, the RPA and the peripheral abscess. And seemingly, the majority of kids in America treated at pediatric children's hospitals are not treated with steroids, generally speaking. So as an emergency physician, if you're being diagnosed, if you're seeing a patient like this and you're not quite sure what to do, I think I would say nobody really knows what to do. And if you choose not to do steroids, that seems to be sort of more going with the flow than going against the flow. Unless there were a lot of those kids who got steroids and went to the OR six hours later. Yeah. Although I would imagine that those cases, at least you're consulting with somebody who's saying, give them steroids. You know what I mean? The, so you're not, you don't necessarily have to make that decision on your own. So unfortunately, a paper that by title and by topic I thought was going to be sort of interesting falls flat. But hey, so it goes. Edit this commentary. This study shows that parapharyngeal and retropharyngeal abscesses are variably treated in children's hospitals with steroids. Most of these patients do not require subsequent surgical drainage. However, any relationship between surgical management and steroid use is hopelessly confounded in the study by its retrospective nature and very odd cohort specification. Abstract number 13. Mortality risk among patients with COVID-19 prescribed SSRI antidepressants. And this is by Oskotsky et al. from JAMA Network Over. So we covered a randomized clinical trial from JAMA where the authors observed that using the SSRI fluvoxamine was effective in lowering the likelihood of clinical deterioration in outpatient adults with symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection. This trial was very well conducted, actually, but confidence in the findings, I think, was limited due to a small sample size, the fact that not that many people had the primary outcome of interest, and that some of their major findings were largely subjective in terms of symptoms and things like that. And when we discussed this paper, I remember really clearly saying, boy, if these SSRIs really work, right? We said that, you'd think that people who are already taking SSRIs would have better outcomes. Right. Than... And we called for this study. Yeah. And which somehow... I assume that they heard our call, did the study, 
got it through the peer review process in the last and, couple of months. And two months yeah. later here, I can't think of any other reason There's why no, they would have done you, this. You're then. welcome, Dr. Oskotsky. I assume that they gave us some acknowledgement in the back of the paper. I guess I, I didn't see one, but I'll oversight. Sometimes when based on your internet access and things like that, and you're, just, you, you don't see, you that. don't see those special. See. There was actually a big color photo of the two of us. In the front saying, special thanks, guys, with a big heart yeah. around it. So it was very, very sweet. It was a good idea. It was a good idea. One of our few good ideas. So as a reminder, for people who are interested in SSRIs for COVID, the people who think it should work say that serotonin dysregulation somehow worsens COVID illness. And because it has a role in altering platelet number and activity, these SSRIs do specifically this fluvoxamine and fluoxetine, act on this some specific pathway that's supposed to diminish the inflammatory response via some cytokine reduction. So that's like three sort of different biochemical reasons why this might help a little bit in COVID. It's not just totally random. This study led by authors from UCSF used data from the Cerner Real World COVID-19 database, which I had never heard of before, that has information on patients with COVID from 87 health centers across the United States. They started with 90,000 patients with confirmed COVID infection and divided them into three categories. Those who had no exposure to SSRIs, and that's 80,000 of them. Those with exposure to SSRIs in the 10 days before or seven days after their COVID diagnosis, which was about 3,500. And those with exposure to SSRIs, but not at the time of their diagnosis, which was like another 7,000. That group two was the one they were most interested in, the ones getting SSRIs right around the time of their COVID diagnosis. And they broke this group down into a few different categories, ones that were exposed to fluoxetine, ones that were exposed to fluoxetine or fluvoxamine, and those who were exposed to another SSRI, not one of those two. The mortality among active SSRI users was 14.6% versus 16.3% among match controls. Okay. By medication class, the mortality among fluoxetine users was 9.8%. Among fluoxetine or fluvoxamine users was 10%. It's the same. And among other SSRI users was 15.4%, which looks more like the people the control. Who, like the control. It's yeah. exactly right. Hmm. And all these mortality numbers were significantly less than their match control comparators, like we just said. If you prefer thinking of these results in terms of relative risks, I know Mike certainly would, compared with match controls, the relative risk of mortality was 0.72 if you were taking fluoxetine, 0.74 for patients taking either fluoxetine or fluvoxamine, and 0.92 for the sort of the SSRI group. So the methods in this paper are really strong. These are good methods, but we must remember that with res retrospective data, we can only view associations and can't assume causations. Importantly, although they did a good job of propensity matching, it's possible there are unmeasured variables that explain these differences, right? Maybe there's some reason why these people were on fluvoxamine or fluox, some other thing that makes them at lower risk overall mortality. We just don't know, but it's pretty big numbers. I mean, this is like way more interesting in my mind as sort of somebody who thinks about these research studies mm -hmm. than that other trial of mm -hmm. 400 people. This is really cool. Now, we can't confirm that the patients were actually taking the SSRIs 
or confirmed they weren't taking any other relevant medications. But looking at the methods, which like I said, were really good, it does seem like the data they had was something closer to fills than it was prescriptions, like written prescriptions. So this is a pretty cool study and really well done methods. And I think this is going to generate a lot more interest in this fluoxetine, fluvoxamine as a potential therapy for patients with outpatient COVID diagnoses. In this retrospective cohort study, COVID patients who were actively taking the SSRIs fluoxetine or fluvoxamine at the time of their diagnosis had a significantly lower mortality than matched controls. We need larger prospective trials to confirm causation, but the data around SSRIs, specifically fluoxetine or fluvoxamine, as promising therapeutic options for outpatient COVID is definitely growing. Abstract number 14, in pregnant women with suspected VTE and low-slash-intermediate or unlikely pretest probability, D-dimer rules out VTE at three months. This is by Chan et al. It's in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it wins the Rick Bucata Prize for telling you everything you need to know in the title. Thank you very much, Dr. Chan. We'll be sending your gift and reward and prize Are we still shortly. sending out those uh, Rick Bucata t-shirts? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got one on right now. Is yeah. That, is, that, is that what made you think of it? Is that why we're wearing that I'm with Bucata shirt? <laughs> I'm going to make one of those now. <laughs> I can see it right now. Like a Rick with a big thumbs up, and like an arrow, like I'm with Bucata like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That thing's going to sell like hotcakes. You know, hotcakes sell well. I know. It's a thing. And maybe on the back it could say like, and Jerry too, something. (laughs) Like Jerry's holding up like a peace size wearing like a tie-dye kind of t-shirt. I'm really interested. (laughs) I'm really interested in, you know, we've been looking for another physician side gig. Yeah. I think this is it. This is it. This is is my retirement plan. I'm with Bucata. You're putting putting all your eggs in this t-shirt basket. (laughs) <laughs> it makes perfect sense if you don't think about it at all. I won't. <laughs> all right. It's well understood that pregnant women have a much higher incidence of VTE than similarly aged non-pregnant women, and that this risk persists for you know several weeks postpartum, probably up to five or six weeks, something like that. A particular challenge is that diagnostic imaging presents small but definite risks to the growing fetus. CT scanning exposes the fetus to ionizing radiation, while VQ scanning may expose the fetus to sort of radioactive technetium or something like that. MRI, which doesn't expose the fetus to anything in particular that's dangerous, just doesn't work. So that's problematic. So enter the D-dimer. D-dimers, of course, are problematic because they tend to elevate in normal pregnancy, rendering them less useful, but also because the diagnostic qualities of D-dimer are actually not very well understood or tested in pregnant women because very few things are tested very extensively in pregnant women. So this article is actually part of the Annals of Internal Medicine Diagnostic Review Series, and they're actually commenting on a separate systematic review, which we didn't know when we pulled this, that was published in Thrombosis and Hemostasis by Bellicini et al. in October of 2021. So I definitely want to give credit to the originators of this meta-analysis. Sounds like two t-shirt shipments are in order. (laughs) Excellent. But we just doubled our sales. Except we're giving them away. So somehow we're further behind. Uh, That's right. You told me not to think about it. I told you. 
you know, people ask us all the time, like, if you're giving away your T-shirts, how do you make money? And the answer is volume. Oh, that's, that's an old Saturday Night Live yeah, reference. If you don't get that, you know, you're dead to us. Okay, get on go, it. Go watch. We just make change. Watch more TV. <laughs> we just make change. Now, if you don't watch this, you need to get off YouTube and Instagram uh, and go back to VHS tapes. If you can't see Kevin Nealon delivering that line, it's stop real, listening to EMA and get on YouTube. It's what we do. All right. But I can't give them the prize anyway because I can't recall the name of their title. Theirs was probably some convoluted thing that made it seem like it was an open question. Still. You said not to think about who to give the t-shirts to. <laughs> now you're thinking about I it. said not to think about how you make money on it. Anyway, so the authors conducted a systematic review. They identified only four papers that examined the role of D-dimer in pregnant women. It involved a total of about 1,200 people. Three of them were prospective. One was retrospective. Two studies used the 500 cutoff for pregnant patients who were not at high risk for PE, while one of them used the 1,000 cutoff for patients with low risk and 500 for the patients with intermediate risk. This was that pregnancy evaluation of the years protocol, if you recall that one. I think you covered it, actually. I don't think it was me. Recall, for what it's worth, that almost all patients we see in the ED with suspected VTE are low or moderate risk. So this reflects an ED patient population. Risk of bias was generally assessed to be low, though there was some concern in one study. 30% of the women that were evaluated had negative D-dimers, again, by 500 cutoff or by the 1,000 cutoff if they were otherwise, you know, years negative, whatever. So that's 312 women. One of those 312 women had a subsequently diagnosed VTE in the three-month follow-up period. So really a 0.2% or 0.15%. So a really, really small number. And the overall sensitivity for D-dimer in detecting PE was estimated to be 99.5% with a confidence interval that only went as far down as 95%. So the authors of the meta-analysis and the Annals of Internal Medicine Review conclude that a negative D-dimer is sufficient to rule out PE in pregnant women at low or moderate risk for VTE, which is, you know, great news that we can apply it. The bad news, of course, is that over two-thirds of the women who went down this D-dimer testing pathway tested positive for a D-dimer, and then we were back at square one, which is like, well, what do you do? And the answer to that, like how you approach it and how do you deal with, you know, consenting people for various different studies, et cetera, that's not assessed at all at the paper. But it is good news to see prominent publications like Thrombosis and Hemostasis and Annals of Internal Medicine endorsing the D-dimer strategy. It seems to me that it's clearly the way to go as a first step. It just doesn't get you all the way through the diagnostic evaluation. Edit this commentary. This systematic review meta-analysis, and subsequent diagnostic review conclude that a negative D-dimer is sufficient to rule out PE in pregnant women with low or moderate risk for pulmonary embolism. Abstract number 15, the administration of post-intubation sedation in the PEDS-ED. This is by Berg et al. from Pediatric Emergency Care. So although the act of intubating is definitely the most exciting part of airway management, Post-intubation sedation is equally important, but I think less frequently discussed. There are several studies in adults suggesting that we are not the best at this practice. Covered, I can't remember when it was, sometime recently that ED awareness study 
that found a 2.6% rate of patients being fully awake and paralyzed in the ED. So sorry. This paper adds to the literature by focusing on a consecutive sample of pediatric patients with a few minor exclusions who got RSI at a single PDD over a 10-year period. The primary outcome was sedation in an adequate time frame, which they operationally defined as being shorter than the duration of action of the sedatives used for the RSI. So they basically said for a time you got atomidate, ketamine, or propofol, you should have had some sedation within 10 minutes. That's what they said for all of them, which is, yeah, Mike made a little face. That's a little long, maybe, yeah. for propofol, maybe a little fat, but that's what they said. They also looked at adequate dosing determined by the MIGs per kg of the medication given and various predictor variables to assess their impact on the primary outcome. There were 240 patients in the analysis, median age of three years, about 40% trauma, and a median GCS of eight. Only 28% received sedation in an adequate time frame, which is not good, and only 72.8% received any form of post-intubation sedation. Well, you don't want to turn these kids into sedative addicts. <laughs> you know, this I've seen it a million times. I was in a trauma. I got intubated. They put me on propofol. Now I'm mainlining propofol with my baby food. <laughs> Those are low numbers. Adequate dosing rates were low for both, too. I was a little less interested in that. You know, we have different reasons for adjusting those things, sick intubated patients. But looking at predictor variables, this is exactly what you fear would happen. The kids who got the long-acting paralytics were much less likely to receive post-intubation sedation with an odds ratio of 0.16. <laughs> Mike's making a lot of faces. <laughs> That's a really low odds ratio. <laughs> yeah. And kids with higher blood pressures are more likely to receive post-intubation sedation. So, so basically, if they tell you they need sedation, we're willing to give it but we're not being very proactive about it and thinking about it. Now, the in situation. fairness, I can think of a lot of reasons why a patient might not receive sedation in the first 10 minutes. Like, you know, you, I mean, now this is a PZD, but for most of us, you know, maybe we don't intubate a lot of kids. You're like, oh, the vent settings. You kind of have a lot on your mind. There's parents. You have to talk to your parents. There is some stuff confirming the two position. But I can't think of as many reasons why a patient would never get sedation while they were in the ED which is about a quarter of the cases, right? Now, they give data for like, you know, anxiolytics as well as analgesics and stuff. And that part of it got a little messy to me. Like it's possible, in my head, maybe I'm just being optimistic about the whole thing. Maybe like those 25% who never got any sedation, they got some fentanyl or something. They got a bunch of fentanyl. They got something to kind of, you know. Take the edge off of the (laughs) mechanical ventilation. Hey, I'm just... Here's this Pollyanna Sanjay. Yeah, okay. Well, this is a real one, right? It is possible that they got intubated and then they got rushed off to the OR like two seconds later, right? And we don't know that. We don't know those proportion of people who are only in the ED for like less than 10 minutes. So you couldn't have got it. So that's probably a better one, I think, if I'm being more critical of the thing that, you know, as to why that number might be as low as it was. Now, we know in adults, receiving a long-acting paralytic is a risk factor for delayed and under-sedation because they can't move or show signs of discomfort. But the magnitude of the impact here, like Mike said, that odds ratio was really impressive, surprised me a little bit. And it probably makes it even more relevant because in adults, I think we're using sucks a lot of the time still, but in kids, we use long-acting paralytics a lot. In this sample, over half the kids 
were intubated using a long-acting paralytic. So that just kind of makes the magnitude of the problem, in my mind, bigger. Now, the methods here weren't perfect. The definition of the primary outcome could be questions. But the overall message and direction of the findings, to me, rings probably true. The fact that this took place at a PEDS ED might represent a best-case scenario, too, because, you know, they're sort of supposed to represent the best practices for treating these really, really sick kids. So, you know, the odds ratio surprised me, too. I think this is just a good reminder that, you know, intubating kids, not something we do often. It's very stressful. and Maybe it's long-acting paralytic. Don't forget to give some post-intubation This is one of these, you know, there's been enough of this now. This is one of those topics, and I'm not like a big checklist manifesto kind of guy, but this is one of those topics that checklists make sense to me. You know, after the intubation, you have to check off your boxes because you are absolutely right. You intubating a three-month-old trauma patient or a six-month-old trauma, one year, whatever it is, you get that tube in, you're having that like th- that washout effect, you know, where you're just, everything is just pouring out of you, all the emotion and everything. You're feeling so good. The last thing you're sitting there doing is dotting I's and crossing T's. You're like, you know, doing a victory lap and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly the kind of scenario where, you know, a forced reminder, a forced cognitive sort of reminder would be helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. In the discussion section of this paper, this author spent a long time talking about that, ways to sort of deal with this functionally in the ED. They talk about checklists, they talk about protocols, they talk about doing these things in advance too, mm-hmm. yeah. before, like, you know, the kid is coming, make sure that if there is like a, you know, a preset order set you could use that the post-intubation sedation thing is checked right. off even before you, int- yeah. so there is a lot of practical right. things in the discussion section of the paper, but I'm really glad you brought that up. Editor's commentary. This is one of the first studies attempting to quantify the rate of under-sedation post-intubation among pediatric patients, and we are not doing great. The fact that such a large proportion of kids are intubated using long-acting paralytics, and this was found to be a strong independent risk factor for under-sedation, deserves special attention. We don't intubate kids often. It is a stressful situation, and using checklists, protocols, and pre-populated orders might be the best way to mitigate this issue. Be aware, and don't forget to give medications post-intubation. Abstract number 16, sensitivity of modern multi-slice CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage at incremental time points after headache onset, a 10-year analysis. This is by Vincent et al., and it's in Emergency Medicine Journal. So this is a very interesting, albeit somewhat convoluted, study examining the sensitivity of modern CT scanners for detecting subarachnoid bleeding over time. Let's walk into this. So I think we now broadly accept that the sensitivity of CT scan for detecting aneurysmal subarachnoid bleeding is close to 100% if you do the CT scan within six hours of the headache onset. Might not be 100, and we'll quibble about that. And some people will say, well, what if it's super high risk and the CT is negative? Maybe you should do something else anyway. But it's roughly 99 to 100%. If you've got a neuroradiologist looking at that scan. Under good, yeah, optimal conditions, it's very good. The blood's there, you know, whether. The blood's there, errors, and the scanners now are very, very good. Right. But what happens at eight hours, right? Nobody knows. What happens at 12 hours? What happens at 24 hours? The sensitivity must decline. Eventually, right? Eventually the blood goes away. But when? I'm sure now 
especially given the state of crowding and boarding and emergency departments, we're all quite used to having people with bleeding on their CT scans getting repeat CT scans in the ER to determine whether they need to go to the ICU or they can be downgraded to some other level of care. And I've yet to see somebody who had blood on their initial CT scan who six hours later, the blood had disappeared. Haven't seen it yet. It might be possible, but I haven't seen it. These authors retrospectively looked at all identified subarachnoid hemorrhages from their hospital over a 10-year period ending in 2017. The study was conducted in New Zealand. They identified 260 patients during this 10-year period who presented with spontaneous aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Using poor chart review methods, they estimated the time from headache onset to scan, and when this time was missing, imputed it in a very conservative manner, which actually is good. Essentially, they said if it wasn't documented at all, they said the headache started 30 minutes before arrival to the ER. In that way, that's a conservative estimate because if it really started 10 months before the arrival, the CT would be negative, right? And so this gives us a conservative estimate of sensitivities over time, if you will. So I think that that strategy is actually okay. The mean age of the patients was 60. 64% of them were female, which was interesting to me because I've never really considered the gender distribution of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. But now in most things, most bad things we see in the ED, we see that men are worse off because they smoke, drink, into bar fights, et cetera. And this one, two-thirds women. And you know, and as I racked my brain clinically, I'm like, I think that that rings true to me too, that most of the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages I've seen have been women. That's probably like, like a totally known phenomena, but I had just never contemplated it before. You? Uh, I guess I haven't thought about it. I'm thinking back at the last two or th maybe even three cases that I can remember, and they've all been women, yeah. actually. So, I don't know. I don't know. You guys out there will set us straight, I'm sure. Or I could look up something myself, but you know, as we all know, I'm very lazy. So the most common location of the headache was? Frontal. Not specified. <laughs> I thought that'd be enjoyable. There were a bunch that were occipital, but it was, they were kind of all over the place. Of the 260 aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages, CT scan identified 253 of them overall for an overall sensitivity of 97.3%. They then plot out the sensitivity of the CT scan over time. So I'll just go through the numbers and then sort of explain how they sort of got some stuff wrong here. There were 219 subarachnoid hemorrhages that presented within 24 hours. Multi-slice CT detected all of them, okay, on the initial scan, so 100% sensitive. 229 cases presented within 40 hours, and multi-slice CT scanner detected 228 of them, so all but one. So that's 99.6% sensitive. By 96 hours, there had been 235 cases with only three misses for a sensitivity of 98.7%. And that serves as the results of the abstract and as the basis for the conclusion of the paper, which is that sensitivity is great out to 96 hours. But this is incredibly misleading and frankly, just not really correct. In reality, there were only 35 cases that presented between 6 and 24 hours, not 219 that presented before 24 hours. There were only 35 cases of those. And while the scanner picked them all up, the confidence interval 
is really wide because there are only 35 potential cases. I was going to say, I can't even think of the last time I had a rule out Sebaractone and someone was like, it's four days ago yeah. is when my headaches started. Right. Those ends had to be tiny. Right. Exactly. Similarly, only 10 cases presented between 24 and 48 hours, and the multi-slice scanner picked up 9 out of 10 of those, so the sensitivities dropped to 90%, which is no good anymore, and the confidence interval goes down to like 40%. They didn't report any of these confidence. This is my math. And then, you know, thereafter, it gets much worse. Four patients presented between 72 and 96 hours, and the scanner only detected two of them, so 50% sensitive. And then after 96 hours, 22 additional cases presented and the scanner picked up 18, so 80% sensitive. So I like this paper and what they're trying to do, but I fear that the bottom line results from the abstract are likely to be interpreted incorrectly. I would argue that the paper tends to confirm that less than six hours, CT scanners are nearly 100% or 100% sensitive. I mean, they found 100%. So that adds evidence to that idea. For the interval extending beyond that, the available data from this paper tend to suggest the scanner is close to 100% out to 24 hours, but the confidence limits are wide and therefore must be further validated extensively before you start thinking that this is true. And then beyond 24 hours, actually, their data tends to show that it doesn't work. But that's not how they presented it. Not at all. In the abstract, it reads 24 hours, it's 100%. Uh, yeah, you said up it, to 48 hours, 99.8. Yeah. So it looks really, really good. So you have to be really careful. So in fact, this article shows that beyond 24 hours, CT scan alone is not sufficient to rule out subarachnoid. Now you're right that you rarely find people who present three days later who are like, yeah, my head exploded and all this kind of stuff, but it can happen. And when it does happen, don't be thinking that your CT scan is good enough to rule it out. Editor's commentary. This is an interesting study that really adds evidence to the idea that modern CT scanners are nearly 100% sensitive for detecting aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage within six hours of headache onset. There is some suggestion that this high sensitivity may be maintained out to 24 hours. Further studies should confirm this before this is widely adaptive. Beyond 24 hours, sensitivity drops markedly contrary to what the abstract actually reports, and therefore, multi-slice CT scanner cannot be used to reliably rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage in patients presenting more than 24 hours after headache onset. Quick take. Abstract number 17. Rates and clinical impact of discordant x-ray and CT imaging in transfers to a pediatric ED. This is by Miller et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. This one's a quick take. So when treating kids in a community emergency department, we often make treatment and disposition decisions based on imaging that is interpreted locally. Now, maybe sort of Nighthawk or something, but it's usually local. As these studies are often reinterpreted upon arrival in a pediatric ED, when you transfer them, you transfer the images as well, and then there, you know, pediatric radiologists look at everything. Basically, the authors here are asking, what are the concordance rates between the initial reads done at your hospital and the second reads done at that receiving pediatric emergency department. So this is a retrospective chart review of patients transferred to a single peds ED with imaging performed at the transferring emergency department, either x-ray or CT, over a one-year period. They excluded patients that did not come with a formal written read from the transferring ED. They had to have something to compare it to. 
A total of 899 patient encounters were analyzed. 664 involved x-ray reinterpretation, 156 involved CT reinterpretation, and 79 had both x-ray and CT reinterpretation. The concordance rate was about 90% for x-ray and about 87% for CT. Throughout the manuscript, the authors described this as very high concordance. But the interpretation of these numbers in my mind really depends on the magnitude and clinical impact of those discordant reads. And they give this stuff. So the discordant x-ray reads resulted in minor clinical impact in 45% of patients and major clinical impact in 37% of patients. Most of the discordance was overcalls by the transferring center. Discordant CT reads resulted in minor clinical impact in a third of the patients and major clinical impact in 50% of the patients. And again, the discordance was overcalls by the transferring center. Importantly, we have no idea what percentage of patients not transferred would have had a discordant read, right? And we're also making an assumption here that the PEDS ED read is the gold standard, that they were correct and the referring center was wrong. So in my mind, I think this is important information for both transferring and receiving facilities. You know, if your clinical suspicion differs strongly from the read that you receive, you're like, I just can't believe it. I really, really thought this or whatever. Or you're just not sure. You're like, I don't know. You know, the the radiologist is like, I'm not really sure. I don't see a lot of these. I don't know. There may be some value in getting an interpretation from a PEDS radiologist, but if that is an option to you before even thinking about or initiating a transfer, I think probably we can all really relate to this dilemma. And I don't know, I'm just, I keep seeing that one out of 10 being discordant, being like, this doesn't sound like really good rates of concordance to me. It sounds bad yeah, I think that's bad. And it's, you know, this discordance is usually you want to hear sort of a more inner rater reliability thing. Cause like most studies are going to be negative, right? Like if you just start from a premise of they're, they're negative, then you'll be concordant like 80% of the time. Like if I'm just going to say it's negative no matter what, you know? So having 10% of them be discordant out of a, you know, sort of theoretic baseline that's more like 20 or 30 cases, you know, is, is pretty high. So, you know, I agree with you. That sounds like a high rate. And, you know, this just is speaking to what we've been talking about a lot about these interfacility transfers. They're a big deal, interfacility transfers for families, especially peds, because you're often going really far then. You're skipping over lots of hospitals in certain parts of this country. You're skipping over lots of states to go from a community hospital to a peds hospital, only to get there and have the radiologist go, that's like not real. That would be a bummer. So having abilities and systems in place to get those reads ahead of time I think that's really, really useful to get those consultations ultimately ahead of time would be really, really helpful. Yeah, Obviously, this, I mean, one of the reasons that we picked this pair, this happened to my niece or Amanda's yeah. niece very recently where they yeah. diagnosed her at a you know, community ED with mastoiditis based on a CT. You know, and they called and Mike and I were like, oh, pretty strange. You know, we haven't really seen there, a case of mastoiditis. Is her ear like, you know, like, <laughs> really like that time. dude from and Goonies had, or not? I had seen her just like yeah. a week prior in yeah. person, you yeah. know. And they transferred her to the PDD with like a lot of hullabaloo, and they got there, and they're like, "No, this is this is what otitis media can look like on CT." Yeah. You know, so I saw this happen. I know this happens, and I don't know. I, I think it's worth knowing these numbers to know that uh, you know yeah. it it may be worth getting that second opinion if you can. Yeah, if yeah, you can. I feel like it's more a call to arms. And if for you can't, to get a, figure yeah. out a way to do yeah. it. 
edit his commentary. In this single-site retrospective review, the authors found that among kids transferred to a pediatric ED from a general ED with imaging, about 1 in 10 x-ray and CT reads were discordant on reinterpretation, resulting in a minor or major clinical change in most of the cases. To me, this says we need access to radiologists with experience and expertise in reading pediatric studies when appropriate to avoid unnecessary transfers and potentially incorrect discharges. Abstract number 18, evaluation of the role of anal tone and perianal sensation examination in the assessment of suspected cauticoinus syndrome. This is by Curtis Lopez et al. in the British Journal of Neurosurgery. I like the concept. The evident purpose here is to prove that anal tone assessments are not helpful in identifying patients with cauticoinus syndrome, which you know we all approve of because none of us particularly enjoy anal exams. The authors point to a few small studies that suggest Anal tone is not very useful in spine pathology. And one of the studies they cite is very interesting because they describe an anal model with varying levels of tone. And they describe the interrater reliability of people pushing into this tone thing and say, you know, and it's like, it's terrible, which. An anal know, model like a thing sitting yes. on a shelf. Well, not- I believe that that's the case. That's how they described it, that you pump up the anal tone thing. And there are a lot of funny things that emerge with that. Like, I'm like, wow, that is a wild model to have thought, dreamed up and developed like the pneumatic squeeze thing. Shark tank. Shark tank. Well, it's at least as good an idea as the Rick Bucata t-shirts. Bottom line is, we're going to be doing this a long time because we're not going to be able to come up with anything good that's going to pay for our retirements. Rick, we cut our t-shirts, our best idea so far, and it's not good. <laughs> All right. They actually conclude this paper by saying, the clinical finding of reduced anal tone has no demonstrable diagnostic value either in itself or in combination with other findings for patients with suspected cauticonus syndrome. The problem is their methodology makes this conclusion basically incorrect. So now I find myself in the unenviable position of actually sort of advocating for the anal tone assessment, which is a little weird. So what did they do here? What's the problem? They conducted a retrospective review of consecutive patients from the ED who were referred to a spine specialty group for evaluation of cauda equina. To be included, the patients had to have been in the ED, be suspected of cauda equina, and have an MRI performed. So they have all that stuff. Patients were excluded if they had trauma, tumors, or infection. So that's right there is a pretty major problem because I usually don't know the pathology a priori when I'm sending people, having them being evaluated or deciding whether they need an MRI or need to be seen by a neurosurgeon. They reviewed the ED record to determine if the digital rectal exam was done And if so, what were the results? Like, was the tone normal or abnormal, et cetera? The chart review methods are not described. And that's problematic when the whole point is you have to evaluate the chart review to tell me what the anal tone is. You know, that's that's a really, really big problem. Finally, they divide the study group into those who had MRI-proven cauda equina syndrome. Again, excluding all those who had tumors and things like that. So this is like disc bulge cauda equina syndrome or something like that and those who had MRI disproven results, okay? 11% of the total had cauda equina syndrome confirmed on the MRI, and they say in that group, the MRI proven group, 35% of them had documented reduced anal tone. 
Okay, fair enough. But then they say in the group that did not have cauda equina, 31% of them had reduced anal tone. So they then argue because the prevalence of reduced anal tone is similar between the two groups, it has no diagnostic value. But this is not necessarily true as the anal tone finding may have been what triggered them to get the MRI and therefore be included in the study, or conversely, normal anal tone may have been the thing that precluded them from getting the MRI and they're therefore not being included in the study. So this is like a denominator problem. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's like we just, with all these people who didn't get MRIs with normal anal tone, that might have been a perfectly good test to perform on them to decide uh, not uh, to get the MRI. Yes, and that's really a fatal flaw in the study design. You know, it's you can't use the diagnostic test to determine entry into the study yeah. when you're studying a diagnostic test. And that and that there's every reason to believe that that could have happened here. And so so we're sort of stuck. And then, of course, the chart review methods or lack thereof make anything, even if they hadn't done that, would render all of this very, very problematic. Having said all of that, because I don't like to just be like, terrible paper, throw it away, garbage, 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 garbage. What can we learn? I think we can probably safely conclude that reduced anal tone is not highly specific for cauda equina syndrome because a significant number of people who had reduced anal tone had proven no cauda equina syndrome on MRI. So while I still think that's a concerning symptom, it's by no means, you know, absolutely definitive or anything of that nature. So, you know, I think that's sort of what we can take from this paper. I don't think we can take too seriously that anal tone has no value whatsoever, though I generally agree that as an isolated finding, it's probably pretty limited. This paper just can't get us to that strong of a conclusion. Editor's commentary. This is a severely limited single-site retrospective cohort study of patients with atraumatic cauda equina syndrome. The authors overstate the findings, but the general point that anal tone has limited diagnostic value, particularly in terms of its specificity, are likely true. House of Medicine. Abstract number 19. Pet Therapy in the ED and Ambulatory Care, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Gaudet et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. The emergency department is a stressful place to work. Just cut to the chase. Are, we, are you bringing Toby to the ER or not? If it was up to me, I'd bring the Tobe in every day, every shift. I really feel like he'd bring a calming presence to the place. Toby? Yeah, Toby. You're a dog, Toby. Yes. Okay. Toby's the best. Yeah, Toby... When you meet Toby for the, well, let's just say 8,000th time, jumps all over you, repeatedly punching you in your private parts. You know what? Maybe he's excited to see you. Okay. I like Toby, Maybe he but likes I've never you. seen him not, you know. Oh, that's not true. Punch. Uh, he doesn't always jump. He doesn't always he's jump. He's getting old, so it's like arthritic hips. He doesn't always jump anymore. Okay. It has been shown that pet therapy, or what they call animal-assisted interventions, can reduce stress in multiple different healthcare settings, right? We covered a study a year or two ago that showed that a five-minute interaction with a dog mid-shift, do you remember that study? Yeah, versus the painting like Versus coloring. Versus coloring obscenities or something. Wasn't there some obscenity Yeah, that's in there? exactly what it was. It was like coloring those like really crazy adults, like coloring mm -hmm. things, could reduce provider self-reported stress as well as measured cortisol levels. Remember, they like did yeah, they blood did draws and stuff. And stuff yeah. The funniest thing about that paper, if you remember, was the people who did the coloring actually showed increased stress levels 
at the end, and the authors in their discussion said, we think it's because they thought they were going to get to play with dogs and didn't get to, and were mad <laughs> when they got random, when they got up there and walked in a room, and instead of Toby waiting there to greet them, there was a coloring book. Yeah, they're like some jerk judging the quality of their coloring. I'd be pissed too. But in this study, the providers left the floor to go play with the dogs, so they didn't bring animals to the ED. In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors looked for studies of comparative, mixed-method, or qualitative design on animal interventions in the ED or an acute ambulatory care setting. And they found 14 studies in total. Nine of them were RCTs with about 350 patients, 150 providers, and 120 child caregivers. Seven of the studies were conducted in pediatric settings and seven in primarily adult settings. Dogs were used in 13 of the 14 studies. In one study, they used something else. Any thoughts, Mike? A pig. It's got to be a pig. Chicken. An hey. aquarium with colorful fish. They wa- brought an aquarium. It's like, uh, what about Bob? You know, he had like the aquarium around his Great. neck. Great. Gill. The fish. Yeah, the gill. The fish. <laughs> Love it. They're walking around with it on their chest. Great reference. Mike? You redeemed yourself at the end. That was a fantastic reference. Baby steps. That's baby, baby steps, steps through the end of this abstract. <laughs> so they provide a table in there with all the papers. It looks like only two of them actually brought dogs into the ED. Both of them were for patients to go in patients' rooms who were there for a long time. There was a suggestion of decreased pain and anxiety for the patients in the before and after studies, but this was not seen in the randomized control trials. In the two studies that looked at provider stress, the dogs were found to reduce stress, but not in a statistically significant way. It's worth noting that for all the outcomes, the certainty of evidence assessed was described as the authors by being low or very low. Shocking. (laughs) Primarily due to the limited number of studies and inconsistency of effects, in addition to high concerns for bias in all of the available studies. The evidence is not great. Even though it's kind of negative, I feel like... You're telling me there's a chance I could bring Toby to the ED. There was a qualitative piece to most of the studies, and the quotes were positive. Patients said they felt things like happy, calm, loved. Those were like sort of frequent themes that emerged in the qualitative component. At the end, the authors kind of interestingly make sort of a suggestion list for future researchers, like saying, if we want to know the answer to this, these are the kinds of things they need to do. And they make recommendations, specific ones about like, study design, outcome selection, environment, things like that. In my mind, I feel like the authors are dog fans (laughs) because in the discussion, they say that, you know, dogs have been shown to benefit providers in other settings. And as both the provider studies and theirs were positive, it seems like it's worth setting up some bringing a dog program, (laughs) giving them a chance. I love it. I love the message here. Mike, I feel like we should write a grant. I feel, our, I feel like my calling is finally here. I think this is our money-making thing. We're going to build a bring-a-dog-to-work business, and that's what we're going to do. We're gonna I just, this is one of those things where units. I see the literature, and I feel like I spit on you. You know, Not the authors of this paper, because they are dog fans, of, but every other author. How could you not? If you bring a dog into the ED, how could that not be just universally viewed as blow off the charts, amazing intervention? I don't get it. Some people don't like dogs. You shut your mouth. <laughs> Editor's commentary. 
In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors don't find compelling evidence that pet therapy in the ED reduced pain or anxiety for patients or stress for providers in a statistically meaningful way. But they sort of blame their findings on the heterogeneity of included studies and still seem positive on the idea. For me, this is a good reminder that our jobs are very, very stressful, and taking a few minutes before, during, or after your shift to do whatever is calming for you is a great way to help stay centered. Abstract number 20, novel referral pathway for patients with new solid tumors discharged from the emergency department, a pilot study. This is by Pettit et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine. I love the idea. don't really love the study because it's sort of bordering on whether it really is a study or not. The point here is that patients present to the ED for, you know, a million reasons and are frequently found to have tumors or suspicious lesions on imaging or exam that require further evaluation but are not so sick that they need to be admitted. In theory, excellent primary care should be able to handle these referrals, but in practice, the kinds of patients that show up at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night with chronic cough only to find out that they have a big lung tumor are the same ones that don't have great access to great primary care and have extremely limited ability to navigate our, in America, extremely complex you know, healthcare system and referral pathways. So these authors developed an asynchronous referral pathways for such cases. Basically, the ED doctor puts in an e-oncology consult, an electric oncology consult through their EHR. The next day, a single oncologist reviews the findings, the imaging findings, whatever documentation was there, and basically connects the patient to the next appropriate step in their diagnostic slash treatment pathway. This idea was instituted and performed at a hospital in Indiana, and they report on their experience over the first few months of the program, which started in December of 2020 and went through March of 2021. They only report on 28 referrals. So the three-month period, 28 referrals, 10 per month. You know, I mean, that's not an unreasonable number. And since these cases can really drive you crazy, I think that that's great, but it's only 10 per month. The mean age was 55. The majority of the patients were Black or Latino and 40% were uninsured. The e-oncology team referred the patients to a variety of subsequent things, including physical oncology clinics, IR-guided biopsies, a whole bunch of things. And they estimated the consultant spent eight minutes on each case. So it wasn't this Herculean effort to try to do this. Ultimately, four out of the 28 were lost to follow-up, and the large majority of the rest were diagnosed with cancer in the 30-day follow-up period. There's no real way to understand how successful this program was. All the methods are really just not, they're just not strong. You know, they're just not strong. The chart review methods, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm not highlighting this paper for methodologic rigor. It's not compared to other potential strategies or anything like that. But we are continually faced with these sort of non-medical problems in the ED. How do I get this person who obviously needs care into care? These are the very patients that sit in the ED for like extra hours, both contributing to the crowding of the ED, but they also get frustrated. These are the very kinds of patients that get super pissed off in the ED because they're like, what's happening with me? Nothing's happening. You're not doing anything. And you're trying to explain to them, like, I've called like the ENT doc and the oncologist and nobody's calling me back. I'm trying to help you. And they're like, nobody cares. And they walk off angry. You walk off having wasted a lot of time, feeling really bad about the clinical situation. Now there's an angry patient with a tumor who is not going to get follow-up. So I really applaud 
these authors for taking on the responsibility of trying to develop this pathway, particularly in an asynchronous manner. So you can discharge a patient when it doesn't make any sense for you to be trying to connect them to primary care at 2.30 in the morning on a Saturday. You know, I really applaud them for, for taking this thing. We really, really need this. These types of pressure relief valves are, you know, really important and we need to build up the evidence for them, the best practices around them. And so I applaud the authors for undertaking it, even though at this point, I wouldn't really consider this science or any kind of level of proof that this actually works. Editor's commentary. This is a small single-site evaluation of a novel referral pathway for patients diagnosed with suspicious tumors in the ED. The pathway involved an e-referral to a single oncologist who reviewed the case file the following business day and referred the patient to the appropriate next step in management. The methods and size of the study are not sufficient to make firm conclusions about the efficacy of the strategy. I still like it. Welcome to the March 2020 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beck Esme. As always, I am joined by the marvelous, the wonderful, the truly, truly outrageous Jess Monis. Thank you. <laughs> Jess, yes. uh, we were just chatting a little bit before getting our recording started here, and I know that you had some news you wanted to share with all of the listeners. Well, I did. I feel like I have to disclose since 2022 has had a rough start for me. And I wanted to let our listeners know just in case I have to go MIA at times. So the week of Christmas, I had a routine mammogram. I had a normal one 10 months ago, but I hit my deductible for the year and I wanted to squeeze it in. I was starting a string of seven shifts and I went on the Monday. They saw something unusual. They called me back for more imaging on Wednesday. The radiologist didn't like the looks of it and did a biopsy on the spot. A few days later, I had an answer. Triple negative breast cancer with nodal involvement. Now I'm looking at 24 weeks of chemo, followed by surgery, radiation, and who knows what else. I've gone through the guilt, the anger, and I think I'm in the acceptance phase. I'm 42 years old, no family history, no appreciable lump. I suppose I should be grateful that I started my mammos early. Ladies, don't put it off. It's also a good thing that I'm cheap and I got the repeat screening 10 months after my last, but needless to say, it's been a whirlwind. But, Jenny, life moves forward. We are all facing challenges right now. Omicron has pushed us to the limit, and every time I feel an ache or pain, I feel like I'm playing the game of COVID or chemo. But we put one foot in front of the other, and we take a step. So, Jenny, I'm glad to be doing this with you, because I feel like we need to stay on top of the evidence, and what better way to do it than in under 30 minutes. So, I'm ready if you're ready. Jess, I am ready. Thank you for sharing with me and with all the listeners. I'm sure that the well wishes are going to pour in. But you're right. You know, we trudge on. It's just one more thing that you have to deal with. And we will all be with you as much as we can through this process. Thank you. Let's do this. I'm ready. Paper number one. Effect of use of a bougie versus endotracheal tube with stylet on successful intubation on the first attempt among critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial. This is a very interesting paper. Now, for context, back in 2018, the BEAM trial showed improved first-pass success when intubating with a bougie as opposed to a stylet. 
This is a larger study. It's a multi-center, parallel group, unblinded, randomized trial from 15 sites across the U.S. looking at patients getting RSI. They had a really strict definition of first pack success, more strict than the BEAM trial. And for success, it was a single insertion of the blade and a single insertion of the bougie tube silet combo, whichever the patient was randomized to. The doctors included were about 60% EM and 40% ICU, and the doctors used video laryngoscopy about 75% of the time. Interestingly, no matter what outcome you looked at, the two groups were basically the same. First pass success, timed intubation, hypoxia events, serious adverse events, all were same, same. Sanjay points out some reasons this could be, including perhaps the exclusion of the sickest patients and the inclusion of ICU doctors who may or may not be less familiar with the bougie technique. Either way, the study does not look quite as good for the bougie as the BEAM study did. Now that said, I am a really big fan of bougie first. This study doesn't show that it is worse than the stylet. And in my mind, the bougie's real money is as a rescue device. But if you aren't incredibly facile with it, it is useless as a rescue device. So using it for all your intubations means when you really, really need it, you are in top notch in your bougie skills. All right. Paper number two. The small percutaneous catheter versus large open chest tube for traumatic hemothorax, a multi-center randomized clinical trial. The traditional teaching for a traumatic hemothorax has always been large bore chest tube placement. The concern was that a smaller tube may clot and fail, but is this true? This study compared 14 French pigtails to 28 to 32 French chest tubes, and guess what? No significant difference in the failure rate which was 11% for the pigtails and 13% for the chest tubes. Secondary outcomes like output, tube days, and length of stay were also similar. There was a difference in patient experience, though. Turns out, patients hate placement of a small percutaneous catheter a lot less than they hate the placement of a large chest tube. Sounds promising, but before implementing this strategy, you need to get your trauma or CT surgeons on board, whoever will manage it on the floor. So bigger isn't always better, huh? Mm, true. Paper three, effect of amoxicillin dose and treatment duration on the need for antibiotic retreatment in children with community-acquired pneumonia. This study compares both amoxicillin dose, so 35 to 50 mg per kg versus 70 to 90, and duration, three versus seven days, among kids who are older than six months and who are clinically diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia and the primary outcome they were looking at was the need for retreatment with antibiotics within 28 days. They found that there was no difference, really, in the need for retreatment based on either the amoxicillin dose or the duration. Now, this is for all enrolled patients, including admitted and discharged patients. So they did some subgroup analysis and found that in patients with severe pneumonia and in the subgroup of admitted patients, there may have been slightly less of the primary outcome, so slightly less need for a retreatment in the higher dose and the longer duration groups. So overall, the shorter duration and lower dose were deemed to be non-inferior, but there may be groups in which this was not the case. Okay, so we learned bigger isn't always better, longer isn't always better, and more is not Higher always dose better. isn't always better. <laughs> All right, got it, got it. Less is more. It's less a less is, is more. more kind of day. Yeah. All right, paper number four, anterior lateral versus anterior posterior electrode position for cardioverting atrial fibrillation. So way back in the day, anterior lateral was king. 
Then some data came out suggesting anterior-posterior placement may be more effective, but this was in the monophasic shocking days. The authors here asked, in the setting of biphasic shocks, which is better? This was a large multi-center randomized trial comparing the two positions for elective cardioversion of atrial fibrillation. After one shock, about half of the anterior lateral group converted compared to a third of the anterior-posterior one. After four shocks, it was 93% with lateral and 85% with posterior. It looks like in the era of biphasic shocking, anterior lateral reigns supreme. And for me, this will change practice. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. Paper number five, accuracy of a rapid glial fibrillary acidic protein ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 test. Yes, I did it. For the prediction of intracranial injuries on head CT after mild traumatic brain injury. Okay, that was a mouthful. When I started paper number one, I said, and I quote myself, this is a very interesting paper. Now for context, back in 2018, (laughs) well, this segment can start the same. This is a very interesting paper. And now for context, back in 2018, the ALERT TBI trial showed that a blood test for a combination of the glial fibrillary acidic protein and ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 may reduce unnecessary head CTs for head trauma. Who knew? The FDA approved the test, but my guess is that you have never used it, and probably have never even heard of it, and that could be because this is a lab test that was based in the lab and had a long turnaround time, and that really doesn't have much clinical value when you're deciding to scan or not a scan patient in real time. This paper looks at a point-of-care version of that lab test, testing banked blood samples on the POC lab test. They found the test had a sensitivity of 0.958, specificity of 0.404, and negative predictive value of 0.993. Not bad for a test that would help us rule out a bleed. That said, these banked blood samples were drawn late in the patient presentation. There is nothing here that tells us that the blood drawn at the time of presentation, when you're really deciding whether to scan or not to scan, would perform nearly as well. For more on concussions and TBIs, listen to the MRAP 2021 March segment on concussion. You know, this could potentially be a game changer. If we have a point of care, right? We have a great point of care with a great negative predictive value. But you're right. We need to see more. We need to see real-time data on this. Exactly. All right. Paper six. Thrombectomy for anterior circulation stroke beyond six hours from time last known well, Aurora, a systematic review and individual patient data meta-analysis. This paper reviewed six RCTs, including Dawn and Diffuse, to examine the use of thrombectomy in anterior circulation proximal large vessel occlusions six to 24 hours from last known well time. There was a clear benefit with an odds ratio of 2.42. Thrombectomy was associated with higher rates of independent activity than medical therapy alone. Treatment effect was higher in the 12 to 24 hour group than the 6 to 12 hour group, but there was no difference in mortality or intracerebral hemorrhage. Bottom line, if you can get these patients to thrombectomy, just do it. Paper number seven, steroid use in non-oxygen requiring COVID-19 patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Luckily, as of right now, the Omicron COVID variant in general seems to be causing less severe illness. We know from the recovery trial that dexamethasone provided a mortality benefit for COVID patients who were intubated or required supplemental O2 but in this wave, that's far fewer patients. 
Here, we are looking at the effects of steroids on COVID patients who don't require oxygen. They included seven studies that looked at just over 2,000 patients, and they looked at mortality, proportion of mild COVID-19 patients progressing to severe disease, duration of fever, duration of viral clearance, and hospital length of stay for patients who did and did not receive steroids. They found that for all parameters, the steroid group did worse. Now, there is some heterogeneity among the studies that make it challenging to really say definitively based on this paper, but it seems that for the milder illness, steroids might be doing more harm than good. Yeah, gosh, you know, it's like I feel like everybody wants steroids, you know? I know. We want to be able to do something, right? right? And the patients want us to be able to do something, but it doesn't seem like that is the golden ticket. Nope. Paper eight. Randomized clinical trial comparing helmet continuous positive airway pressure to face mask continuous positive airway pressure for the treatment of acute respiratory failure in the emergency department. Now, I have not seen this in real life, but I googled the CPAP helmet and it looks pretty cool. I imagine it's quite tolerable, so how does it compare to the good old face mask? This study randomized patients presenting to the ED in respiratory distress to either one. Both improved the respiratory rate heart rate, and arterial oxygenation. Patients reported much less discomfort and dryness with the helmet, and the intubation rate was markedly lower. It was 4.4% with the helmet and 18% with the face mask. Wow, CPAP helmet. While this does not come in a BiPAP flavor, I would love to see it in practice. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the helmet would be more comfortable. I mean, as, as long as it's just as good or better, great. Paper number nine, incidence of central line-associated bloodstream infections following central venous catheter placement in the emergency department. In the ED, we place crash central lines and we place sterile central lines. And at least when I hand off a patient to the inpatient service, I am very clear as to which is which. That being said, when it comes to a central line-associated infections, the finger often gets pointed at the emergency department. This paper compared sterile lines placed in the ED excluding the crash lines with sterile lines placed in the ICU. Of the roughly 1,200 lines placed, they found no statistically significant difference in infection rates by hospital location they were placed. And actually, if anything, it was a little better for the lines placed in the emergency department. Two and a half infections per 1,000 catheter days for lines placed in the ED versus four and a half per 1,000 catheter days for lines placed in the ICU. They found that lines placed in the ED tended to favor femoral lines, where lines placed in the ICU favored IJs and subclavians. And interestingly, despite the ED doc preference for femoral lines, which are thought to be a dirtier line, the infection rate wasn't worse, and if anything, it might have been a little bit better. Now, as Sanjay points out, the author team here is from the emergency department. And the methods described are scant, so perhaps there is bias here in favor of the ED lines. But this isn't the first paper to suggest that the sterile femoral line gets a bad rep and probably isn't the boogeyman line that people seem to think it is. Hmm. I mean, that's really interesting and surprising, actually. Mm -hmm. But I like to believe it, so cool. Yeah. Paper number 10. Effective intravenous or intraosseous calcium versus saline on return of spontaneous circulation in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. Survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is abysmal, and medications don't seem to make much of a difference. Epi sounds good. Nope. Vasopressin? Nope. What about calcium? 
In this study, patients were randomized to parenteral calcium chloride or saline. In the calcium group, 19% had ROSC. In the saline, 27%. What about favorable neurological outcomes? You know, the thing we care about. It was 4% with calcium and 8% with saline. Just add calcium to the big pile of nopes. Paper number 11. Efficacy of inhaled ciclesonide for outpatient treatment of adolescents and adults with symptomatic COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial. This is a quick tape paper, so I'll get right to the point. It's a phase three multicenter double-blind RCT of 400 outpatients with confirmed COVID infections. Patients were randomized to receive ciclesonide MDI, an inhaled corticosteroid, twice daily or placebo for 30 days. Quick take result, they did not find a benefit in mortality, admissions, or resolution of symptoms with inhaled ciclesonide over placebo. So another steroid didn't seem to work kind of paper. All right, add to the pile of nopes. Yep. Paper number 12. Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Pediatric Retropharyngeal and Parapharyngeal Abscesses. This was a retrospective paper that seemed promising from the title, but in the end was too muddy to draw a conclusion. The premise is great. Take the kids with suspected RPAs and compare those that got steroids to those that didn't and see who went to the OR. It was about a quarter of the steroid group and about half of the non-steroid one. On the surface, it seems simple enough give them steroids. But here is where it gets cloudy. Patients who received steroids and went to the OR the same day were not placed in the steroid group. Totally get that. Not enough time to kick in. The problem is they put those patients in the non-steroid group. These may have been the sickest of all the patients, the ones you throw everything at, and now they raise the non-steroid OR rate. Not cool. Mm -hmm. My inclination is to give these patients a dose of steroids but it appears that many don't, and there really is no way to tease out from this paper what the ideal approach is. Interesting. Now, the steroids didn't have any impact, it sounds like, on whether they went to the OR. But sometimes are we giving the steroids more for kind of a pain control situation with the really bad sore throat? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, that's why I do it, right? I mean, I give them. Yeah. I feel like the downside's pretty minimal here, and if it can give some symptomatic relief, why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Paper number 13, mortality risk among patients with COVID-19 prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants. Interestingly, a previous JAMA paper showed that the SSRI fluvoxamine was effective in lowering the likelihood of clinical deterioration in outpatient adults with symptomatic COVID infection. Authors here wanted to look further at whether patients taking SSRIs had less severe COVID infections. They looked at a database of just over 90,000 patients with confirmed COVID infections and divided them into three groups. Those with no exposure to SSRIs, those with an exposure to SSRIs in the 10 days before or seven days after their COVID diagnosis, and those with an exposure to SSRIs, but not at the time of their COVID diagnosis. They found that COVID patients who were taking fluoxetine or fluvoxamine at the time of their COVID diagnosis had significantly lower mortality than matched controls. Now, remember that correlation is not causation, but a larger prospective trial may be in order to further investigate these medications. Maybe we'll have something to put in the yes pile. Fascinating. Really fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. I know. All right, paper 14. 
In pregnant women with suspected VTE and low intermediate or unlikely pretest probability, the D-dimer rules out VTE at three months. I know I've said this before, but I love papers that validate what I do, and this is one of them. This review asked, in low to intermediate risk pregnant women with suspected VTE, can a D-dimer rule out a clot? Spoiler alert, it can. A systematic review and meta-analysis found a negative predictive value of 99.5%. Not too bad. We know that pregnant women are prone to nonspecific elevations of their D-dimer. And Mike points out that two-thirds of the women had elevated D-dimers, so you were still left with the dilemma of scanning them. But I'm a glass-half-full kind of gal, and I say you're sparing the other one-third the radiation. That's a win. Absolutely. This... First of all, I love a paper that validates what we're already doing. (laughs) And I love a paper that tells you exactly in the title what the message is going to be. But of course, this makes sense, right? Like if a pregnant woman is more likely than a not pregnant woman to have a positive dimer just anyway, then a negative dimer really should mean it's a negative dimer. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Good thing it does. Paper number 15, the administration of post-intubation sedation in the pediatric emergency department. This paper looks at post-intubation sedation in peds patients, and spoiler alert, it is not great. The primary outcome was sedation in an adequate time frame, which meant the time frame was shorter than the duration of action of the sedative used for RSI. Only 28% received sedation in an adequate time frame. And roughly 25% of patients didn't receive post-intubation sedation while in the emergency department at all. Adding insult to injury, kids who received a long-acting paralytic were much less likely to receive post-intubation sedation, probably because they were paralyzed and couldn't signal their need for sedation. But as all of you know, I am a new mom, and the idea of a paralyzed awake child is really more than I can bear. We are bad about this in the adult patient population too, and we just cannot forget this. We have to use checklists, order sets, the buddy system, whatever it takes to improve these numbers. Yeah, that is literally adding insult to injury. Literally. Yes, exactly. Paper 16. Sensitivity of a modern multi-slice CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage at incremental time points after headache onset, a 10-year analysis. CT scanners are so good these days that if a patient presents within six hours of a sudden onset headache and there is no blood, you're done. So what about 6 to 24 hours? More than that? This paper would have you believe that the sensitivity is as high as 98%, 96 hours out from symptom onset. But this should be interpreted with caution. The authors minimize the deterioration of the sensitivity as time progresses. But if you look at the lower level of the confidence interval further out, it's just not good enough. The reported pooled sensitivity under 96 hours is 97.8%, with a confidence interval of 95 to 99%. This may sound reasonable to some, but when you look at the actual numbers, there were five patients that presented between 72 and 96 hours, and four of their head bleeds were missed on CT. That does not sound reasonable. You need to decide what is your acceptable miss rate. For me, under six hours is a no-brainer. Near 100% sensitivity, I'm good with that. I would even consider under 24 hours, but I'd like to see more data, especially beyond that time. Paper number 17, 
Rates and clinical impact of discordant X-ray and CT imaging in transfers to a pediatric emergency department. When pediatric patients are transferred from a general ED to a pediatric ED, their imaging studies are often re-examined by the receiving center. In this single-site retrospective review, the authors wanted to see how often that radiology reread gave a different interpretation and whether that had any clinical significance. They found that about 1 in 10 X-ray and CT reads had a discordant reread, and in most cases, this had a clinical impact. Access to specialized pediatric radiologists is probably of value. I agree with Sanjay's main take-home point here. If your clinical picture differs from what you are finding on your radiologist's interpretation of some study, it may be worth having the imaging examined by a pediatric specialist as you're deciding to make that transfer. The other thing we've talked about many times before and we've seen in many studies also is if you are definitively transferring that patient and you can hold off on the imaging, hold off on the imaging. Let them image them there, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you know the transfer is happening regardless of the results, Get the patient transferred. Absolutely. Paper 18, Evaluation of the Role of Anal Tone and Perianal Sensation Examination in the Assessment of Suspected Cauda Aquina Syndrome. Cauda Aquina is a cannot-miss diagnosis that is, unfortunately, often missed. So how useful is our rectal exam to help us determine how to evaluate suspected patients? According to this paper and supported by my instinct, not helpful at all. There are lots of issues with this paper, but they report that about one-third of patients with cauda equina had decreased rectal tone, and about one-third of patients with no cauda equina had decreased rectal tone. So if cauda equina is in your differential, the rectal exam should not dissuade you from obtaining an MRI. And if cauda equina is not in your differential, keep your fingers away from the patient's rectum. (laughs) Okay. Paper number 19, Pet Therapy in the Emergency Department and Ambulatory Care. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at pet therapy in the ED. They looked at 14 studies, all of which used dogs, except for one that used an aquarium of colorful fish. They were looking at the impact of pet therapy on both patients and providers, since the ED is a stressful and sometimes painful place for all of us, especially right now. Unfortunately, they did not find evidence that pet therapy in the emergency department reduced pain or anxiety for patients or stress for providers in any statistically significant way. This could be due to the heterogeneity of the studies in the meta-analysis, or of course, it could just be because dogs drool and cats rule. Okay, yes, I'm a cat person. But cats seriously. Are awful. <laughs> <Just> kidding. <laughs> not kidding. But seriously. It's a hard time in the emergency department for our patients and for us. So please, lean on your pets, your friends, your family, whatever you need to help you get through this challenging time. Right, except that now that, like, dogs can get COVID, (laughs) they're like, here, do you want to pet my COVID dog? You're like, no, (laughs) no, I do not. Paper number 20, novel referral pathway for patients with new solid tumors discharged from the emergency department, a pilot study. Considering how I started off this ultra summary, I think ending it on this paper is apropos. Cancer sucks. An incidental finding suspicious for cancer found in the ED is not only bad for the patients, but also the provider. You know this patient doesn't warrant admission, but you also don't want to discharge them with no follow-up and just be like, you need to see your PCP ASAP. The problem is, 
patients who see their PCP first, as opposed to a specialist, experience longer delays, including almost a third of patients with lung cancer waiting 90 days or more. Mortality increases 1% to 3% per week in early-stage cancers, so time is literally life. To address this need and diminish delays, these authors established an expedited pathway for patients who had ED workups suspicious for solid tumor malignancies. Basically, the patient is seen, the finding identified, an outpatient referral order is placed for e-oncology, and the patient is discharged. An oncologist reviews the chart on the following business day and helps coordinate further care. Median time to review the case was one day, and it took only eight minutes per case. One-third of the patients were referred to subspecialists, a quarter had an IR-guided biopsy ordered, and another quarter had further imaging. This is a great idea, and I would love to see this implemented at other hospitals. I would love this as well. Making a cancer diagnosis in the emergency department is always very stressful for me because the dispo is, I don't know. I don't know what the dispo should be. Should I bring them into the hospital, make this all happen faster? You know, in New York City, the system is kind of fragmented and it's challenging to get the appropriate follow-up. So yes, I think this sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jenny, we did it. We did it. We did it. I will say this this was a heavy session, and so I feel like I owe you for therapy. Oh, all right. Um, well, sure, yeah. Send me the bill later. Um, to our listeners, stay healthy, stay safe. Till next time. See ya. It's time talk a little natty. Talk a little natty. With Ken Milne. Welcome to the March 2022 Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. I'm your host, Anand Swami Nathan, here as always with my partner, Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, it is great to be back. Always great to be talking nerdy with you, my friend. Well, last month, Ken, we got into the idea of survivor bias or survivorship bias. It kind of goes by both names. And that discussion prompted you to send me an email saying that you wanted to talk about performance bias. Different, obviously, than survivor bias, but another bias that we need to think about when we're reading articles. So to set up this time to talk a little nerdy, you pulled the Direct MT trial. This was an article that Sanjay and Mike reviewed actually a little ways back, reviewed all the way back in August of 2020, almost two years ago. But we're going to use that to frame our discussion. As with many of the topics that we get into, this one is relatively new to me. And I'd like to start by defining it. And I want to say that I'm defining it for the audience, Ken, but let's be honest, I'm asking you to define it to help me out. So let's start with that. What do we mean when we say performance bias? Yeah, it's always great to start with some definitions. And so people understand what we're actually talking about when we're using a term. The audience, after a few years of this, understands now that I really like talking about biases. So when it comes to performance bias, this is defined by the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool, the ROB or ROB, as a result of, quote, systematic differences between groups in the care that is provided or in exposure to factors other than the interventions of interest. So you can see there's two things in there we're going to have to unpack. Yeah, actually, there's a lot in there to unpack. And what you often see in studies, Ken, I, I know you've seen this. I'm sure that the listeners have seen it as well. Somewhere in there, the authors might note, patients were treated the same except for the intervention. But we really have to know what that means. What does it mean that they were treated the same? 
does the extra attention that one group might get, is that volitional? Did the researchers pay more attention to that group on purpose? Or did it just happen as a result of the actual intervention that they had to have? So that's really an important question for us to look at. It is. And unfortunately, many times there's this throwaway line that groups were treated equally except for the intervention. And then they may have a link to their appendix or their supplemental material. And you actually go to the supplemental material and read that if you're big nerds like us. You guys don't have to do it, but we'll do it for you (laughs) and see that, you know, it wasn't really that they were treated identically. And so if you see that line, you know, treated the same, just go, hmm, I wonder if it really was and be a little skeptical. It can be both ways. In other words, sometimes participants in the intervention group will need more care, more monitoring, more treatment because of the specific intervention. So that's one part of performance bias. It can be baked into the actual protocol. So it's really important to see what the protocol was and to see if each group was systematically being treated the same or systematically being treated different besides just the intervention, just the, oh, we gave them this medication. Well, if you give them that particular medication, maybe they have to follow their blood pressure more closely. Maybe they have to follow some biological lab markers more closely. So that can be just baked into the protocol where they have to follow the intervention group or the treatment group a little bit more carefully. Now, other times, though, it can be separate from the intervention itself, and it can be conscious or unconscious by both the researchers and the participants, the patients that have been recruited into the cohort. And it comes into effect with lack of blinding to group allocation. If the participants and the clinicians know If they were in the treatment group or randomly assigned to the control group, you can see how that might change their behavior. The researchers may also just give more attention to the treatment group, or the participants might alter their behavior and care for themselves differently during the process. And sometimes they have outcomes of one month, three months, six months, or a year. And so did they change their behavior with other things that were measured or even unmeasured confounders that had an impact on their outcomes. There's the theory behind performance bias, Ken, but let's get into a real-life example where this actually happened. Okay, well, you know, it's time for time travel then, Swami. (laughs) We spare no expense on sound effects. There is this classic example of using vitamin C or ascorbic acid to prevent the common cold. And it goes back to a study in 1975. So we've been looking at trying to cure the common cold for a long time. And they randomized over 300 people to get a gram of vitamin C or a placebo to be taken three times a day for nine months. And if the participant felt a cold coming on, they were given an additional three grams of azorbic acid or a placebo. Now, those in the treatment group showed a decrease in the duration and severity of their colds. However, it was felt that this may have been due to some performance bias because of unblinding of the study. And it comes back to that blinding piece, Ken. If the patients are blinded, if the researchers are blinded, if the whole team is blinded, then it's less likely that performance bias is going to come into play. But if there is either an unblinded study or 
if the intervention is such that the patients become unblinded or the clinicians become unblinded, then that performance bias can start to seep in. Now, let's go back to the study that we said we were going to talk about the direct MT trial. Just as a reminder, this was a study of endovascular therapy for stroke with or without IV alteplase. So the idea of if I'm going to do endovascular therapy, do I really need that alteplase or is that alteplase really not doing very much? And that study concluded that EVT alone was non-inferior to the approach of lytics and then EVT. So lytics weren't really necessary or it was non-inferior to just do EVT in patients presenting with a large vessel occlusion within four and a half hours of onset. How does the performance bias come in here? I think one of the key aspects of direct MT and a possibility of performance bias was that it was an unblinded trial. And this is, goes beyond the placebo effect because both the clinicians and patients knew if they were getting TPA or placebo prior to EVT. And I don't think it would have been that hard to blind the trial and have, you know, either getting TPA or a placebo without the participants or the clinicians knowing which treatment group they were allocated to. So in direct MT, there may have been researcher bias, but that research bias could be in either direction. So the researchers might have said, we think that lytics should be given before EVT. That might be what was going on in their head before the study was done. And so they put more resources and more attention to the group that their preconceived beliefs fed into. So they put more work, more of those resources towards the group that got lytics before EVT. On the other side of it, they might have said, you know, we don't think lytics are necessary. We think EVT alone is enough for these large vessel occlusions. So we're going to put a little bit more attention towards the group that just got EVT done. It's hard to know exactly which direction that researcher bias might take. Yes, we don't know which direction the bias may be directed towards. And it may be in both directions because different researchers could have different preconceived notions. And it's where that net effect takes place, that point estimate. And so because there's the potential for performance bias in the direct MT study, it should increase our uncertainty about the results themselves. And it makes it fuzzier around that point estimate to how accurate it is. And of course, to our interpretation of that trial. And interestingly, Ken, since direct MT was published, We've had subsequent articles on the same topic, looking at that idea of lytics before EVT or no lytics before EVT that have kind of spoken in the other direction. And that's that uncertainty that you're talking about. This one study doesn't tell us definitively what the answer is. And as we see other research come out, it really does lay question to that first study. And we have to continue to pay attention to this. And what we really want is a blinded randomized control trial, which we understand is hard to do when there's an intervention at play. Although those studies have been done, whether it be with sham surgery or real surgery for knees, for arthroscopy of the knee, so many different procedures that have actually been blinded. And that's really what we want in order to take performance bias out. But Ken, you and I don't create the studies. We don't do the research. We just get to analyze it. So when you read an article like this, what do you really think about in terms of potential for this type of bias? And how does it change the way you interpret the results? Well, I'll answer that question for you, but I want to comment previously on what you just said. And that was, you know, it is hard to do research and we don't want to minimize that. And we don't want to come across as, you know, throwing rocks at glass houses because we're not doing the research. It is hard. But at the same time, 
Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not possible. And these are not parachute trials. These are not parachute issues. They can be addressed. And so I wish they would, you know, increase the methodology so we get more accurate answers and be more certain of what the results are in the interpretation. To answer your second question, though, what can be done to mitigate this potential bias? I really think it comes down to two things. The first, and I think probably the more important thing, is blinding. We're all participants, and that means the patients, the clinicians, even the outcome assessors, so a triple-blinded study, were they unaware of group allocation? And was that blinding maintained? It's not just good enough to blind everybody to allocation at the start. We need to maintain that blinding throughout the treatment process, the intervention, and through the outcome phase. And in really good trials, they will actually ask those involved, hey, which group do you think you were in? Do you think you were in the treatment group or do you think you were in the placebo group? And that can reassure us that blinding was maintained. The second thing is any additional care beyond the intervention. So look at that protocol. Was the treatment group receiving other things besides just the intervention? I always love seeing that question asked. We asked the people who are studied, which group do you think you were in? And seeing what it comes out on. And what you want to see is that 50% of the people in the placebo arm thought that they got the active treatment and vice versa. You don't always see that. And that's really important because as researchers, sometimes we can go into the study thinking, I have blinded this so well. We are good to go. And then you talk to the participants and you're like, I have clearly missed something. And that's really important for us to tease out. And you're right. The best researchers, that's exactly what they do. They try to find out what may I have missed in the design of my trial that I can then take for the next time and do a better job, right? It's all about doing better the next time. And, and we do see that. It's about falsifiability, Swami. It's about, you know, when we put our stuff out there as researchers, because I've done research, we want it to be picked away at and say, hey, where did I get it wrong? How could I strengthen this? As opposed to, hey, you don't like my conclusions? Um, uh, whatever, right? <laughs> you know, I would rather someone take a look at my stuff and be really critical because we should be looking at falsifying. I mean, that's a, a core tenant, if you believe in Karl Popper, of the scientific method about falsifiability, that it can be proven wrong, that it can be demonstrated to be wrong. Or yeah. false. So I, I, I really do love that you brought that up. And I think it's really important for us to see that in studies. Now, I know that you have stated this, but let's just be really clear one more time for everybody. When you see a study that's unblinded and you interpret and saying, you know, I think performance bias may have come into play here. How does that affect your interpretation of the study? Well, my confidence in the results and the interpretation goes down while my uncertainty goes up. So Ken, another one of these biases, which again, we didn't state it up front, but bias, anything that systematically moves us away from the truth in the study, another important bias for us to really be looking at when we look at these studies, because while, again, we love to see randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials, most studies are not randomized double-blind or placebo-controlled. And so we have to understand when we read those unblinded studies, what different biases could be coming into play how does that affect our interpretation? And this is just another one to add to the list. Performance bias, something that we need to make sure that we are looking at when we do that interpretation. Ken, any other points that you want to hit before we bring this home? And just because you mentioned the truth, I think that because it's an audio show, we should put that in air quotes, the truth, because science doesn't make claims about the truth. What it does is 
tries to find the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that point estimate. And I don't think there's a better way to end the podcast than with that, about talking about what we mean when we use the word truth when we're talking about science. So Ken, great topic. I'm so glad we discussed this. Now, the next month, we have a topic that came in by request. And, you know, sometimes we get requests and we're like, oh, yeah, we'll definitely hit that at some point. And sometimes you get requests that you have to stand up and take notice and you have to meet right away. And this is one of those requests that we had to meet right away because, Ken, who did the request come from? My BFF and <laughs> EBM master, Dr. Chris Carpenter. Oh, all right. And just for the record, I just want to state that we're not doing it just because he's your BFF. We're doing it because of the EBM master part. And Chris gave us a topic that he thinks that we absolutely 100% have to get into. And so we will. We will be getting into that in April. So Chris, thank you for sending that along. And of course, we do take seriously any suggestions. So anyone out there who's got suggestions of topics you want Ken and I to take on, we will treat you the same way that we treat Chris. If you send us a topic, we will absolutely dive in. Anybody who listens to the Time to Talk a Little Nerdy <laughs> has to be an uber nerd and would be considered a BFF to me. That's right. Even though we don't know you, we know that you we are know. kindred spirits. We know yes. you're kindred spirits. You are BFFs. We want those topics. So send them along and Ken and I would be happy to take them on. And of course, until next time, don't forget to stay nerdy. We close the book on March. The Ides of March. The Ides. Ides of March. I'm surprised we didn't get to that until the, the conclusion. Usually the Ides of March make me- Makes its way in the makes intro. Its way pretty early and I- you know, at various points in my life have actually known what that is. I know it's Beware the Ides of March. That's from Julius Caesar. That's Shakespeare, right? So it's bad. Yeah. Ides are bad. You don't want Ides. It's a time. Please, those of you who are erudite and well-read, remind us what the Ides of March are. Are they something related to... You're telling me it's like days? Yeah, it's, it's like days. It's like something like that. And that's the Ides of March, like the middle of March or something. It means something. That's like days. Yes. Like dates. I think it's like specific. I mean, now there's somebody out there who's like a classics major who's like, you are the most ignorant human being on earth and I'm going to lay into you on the online commentary. Well, joke's on you. I don't have to publish them. <laughs> <laughs> so save it and only send me stuff that says nice things, okay? Yeah, but if they make fun of Mike, I can still publish That's them a good on, point. on my end. That's so it could be either or. That's a good point. Don't make fun of both of us simultaneously. That's a way to make sure it doesn't <laughs> get published. <laughs> we actually publish them all. Um, yes, but we anyway. publish every single one. Yeah. So, But yeah, so beware the Ides of March. Watch your back. Brutus is out there doing something. but. You know, while you're doing it, you just stay classy, obviously. <laughs>